0: All right, boom. Welcome everyone to episode two of the Chris and Paul show. Uh, as always, I have my my better half here with me, Chris Beardsley. How are you doing, bud?
1: I'm doing well, thanks, Paul. How are you?
0: I am good. I am good. Today, uh, we're going to tackle the topic of probably the most talked about topic that I see on social media consistently about training and muscle growth and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's I think I have a, a reason why I, I believe that this particular topic is the most talked about. And the one we're going to be talking about is going to be, quote unquote, volume. We're going to have a different way that we, we talk about volume than you usually see online. But I think the reason why that volume is talked about and obsessed over and all of these kind of things is because what I feel like is most guys think if they discover this mathemat- mathematical magical volume formula and they have an exact number of sets, an exact number of reps for exact number of times a week that they're going to see muscle growth occur, that's, that's the key. If you unlock the mathematical muscle magical number key, if you, if you figure that out, then you will grow muscle at a faster rate, double faster than your genetics will allow, You'll be a thousand pounds at sub, you know, 0% body fat within the next couple of years of training that I think that that there's an obsession over volume. Do you feel like that you see that same kind of obsession over this volume number?
1: I certainly see that people prioritize volume in a way that I definitely don't do. Um, I think that I would prioritize things like consistency, progressive overload, you know, some kind of, high effort level in, in, in sort of the key work sets and exercise selection. I prioritize all of those things in advance of training volume, definitely. So I do think that volume is overemphasized by many people in the industry.
0: You just do a lot, just do a lot of, just do a lot of whatever's and you're going to get a lot of muscle growth. I think that's the thing. So let's, let's, um, one of the things that we try to do um, is try to do a good job of setting the stage for making sure when somebody, when they're going through this and they're listening to this, that they have an idea of what it is that we're getting at, that we're trying to talk about. So since we're talking about volume today, one of the things that you and I have discussed uh, on a mul- multitude of occasions is how when people say volume, what they're generally talking about is simply doing um like sets and reps within the workout itself. So five sets for, sh- for chest and then five sets for shoulders. and You know, they assign a specific rep range to it, this kind of stuff. And then they say, well, how much volume? And I think more times than not, what they're asking is how many sets are, am I supposed to do when what? A, there's a better question to be asking you. Sure.
1: And I think really where this starts is, you know what is volume, and what definitions of volume should we be using? Um, and I would kind of say, you know, um, if we look at the, the literature, we tend to find that the uh, the number of sets to failure is the uh, metric, the measurement of volume that is most closely related to these dose responses that most people like to talk about. Whereas other metrics like volume load, which is the sets times the reps times the weight. Uh, they tend to be much less closely associated with with the sort of long-term hypertrophy. So I think really we kind of have to start from zero and say, what is volume? What are we actually talking about when we say volume? And I think for me, when I think of volume, I think it's a quantity of something. Uh, And so we have to be describing a quantity of, what is it? Are we describing a quantity of? Well, obviously we're describing a quantity of specific muscular contractions that stimulate hypertrophy. So hence why I of go down the route of talking about stimulating repetitions but ultimately it's the muscular contraction that's doing the stimulation and volume is simply describing the number of those contractions that we are doing in any particular workout and so really when we look at the set versus volume load debate where people are saying well is volume load an appropriate measurement of 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 kind of these muscular contractions that cause hypertrophy is volume as in the number of sets more appropriate well i mean the literature tells us that answer but also, from a physiological perspective, we can say, well, clearly, volume load is going to include some repetitions that don't fit those criteria. For example, if I do a 12 rep max, then there going to be some repetitions at the start of that set. We know this from just looking at the reps and reserve literature, there's going to be some reps at the start of that set that don't do anything for the hypertrophy stimulus. So kind of got to be looking at the repetitions at the end of the set, the ones that actually cause hypertrophy, the ones within a sufficient proximity to failure. So. I think the reason that we're, we're seeing this relationship between the number of sets to failure and hypertrophy, but we're not seeing the same relationship we're seeing something like volume load and hypertrophy is simply because we're not really connecting the actual repetitions, the muscular contractions that are stimulating hypertrophy with the hypertrophy that we're actually seeing in the volume load calculation. We're only seeing it in the number of sets to failure, or as I prefer to uh, you know, describe it, the number of stimulating reps.
0: Yeah, and like a couple of years ago when you and I first started having dialogue, this was one of the first conversations that comes up or came up between us. And You said uh, I had asked you something about volume because people are perceiving volume a certain way. And you said a volume of what? You said bananas. And you make a joke. And you said, that's my point, is that nobody is quantifying when they speak about what what is the volume that's being driven here. So I think a really, really... Uh, distinct way that that stuck with me was basically we just think of volume as a way to count contractions. So we're, it, it, very simply put, volume is a way that we count contractions. The number of contractions that are performed in a workout overall, whether it's a, uh, whether it's uh concentric contractions or eccentric contractions, isometric contractions, there's some way that we're going to qualify that, hey, we did so many contractions in the workout. Now to further your point there is that Are all contractions the same when it comes to stimulating muscle growth? And unequivocally, we know the answer to that is no. So if we have contractions that don't do anything towards stimulating, when we talk about stimulating muscle growth, because uh, some people that like follow our stuff and like to get buried in muscle, we're we're talking about... Basically, any of the fibers that are controlled by the high threshold motor unit. So the 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 fibers that have the greatest potential for muscle growth, pretty much the only ones that we're we go into and we train. when We're doing resistance training, right? So when we talk about contractions that matter, since all contractions are not the same, not all contractions are going to give us a hypertrophy stimulus for those largest type two fibers. Then what we're really talking about is we're talking about fibers that have a high or uh, contractions that have a high degree of mechanical tension. So there's actual, if we do, like you said, a set of 10 reps, and do we say that the first three reps or four reps or five reps have the same degree of stimulus potential as the last four or five reps in that set, the answer would be no. So when we're quantifying volume, and that's what we're talking about here in terms of how do we quantify volume in terms of, of stimulus for muscle growth, we have, to be quant- we have to be saying it's a volume of mechanical tension. So what we're really talking about is the volume of mechanical tension that's being done. And then those are only counted via the stimulating reps that were done in sets to failure or close to failure.
1: Yes, I mean, basically um, we can sort of talk about this in a series of stages. The first stage is to say, well, it's a volume of muscular contractions or a number of muscular contractions that fit a certain criteria or certain uh, criteria. Uh, Basically, um, the two criteria that we would need to meet will be a high level of motor recruitment, as you were just saying, at the same time as a uh, sufficiently uh, kind of high level of mechanical tension, which would be produced either by a slow movement speed in a concentric contraction or any kind of eccentric contraction. Either of those two things will do. So if we've got the recruitment high as well as the high tension, then we're going to get the uh, stimulus for hypertrophy across the whole muscle. So basically, uh, essentially, our first step is to say we're measuring a quantity or volume of these specific muscular contractions, which essentially is done if we use sets to failure as our metric, but it's also done if we use stimulating reps, because we're just kind of talking about those repetitions at the end of the set. Um, The next step along is to say, well, can we actually um, sort of connect that Um, that sort of dosage and mechanical tension that the muscle fibers across the muscle are experiencing with the hypertrophy. Well, in the rodent literature, we can. So if we look at the rodent literature, what we find is that the force time integral of uh, various different muscular contractions when we're using maximal levels of protein unit crew and using electrical stimulation, that force time integral is nicely uh, kind of associated with long-term hypertrophy. So yeah, basically when we're talking about our volume uh, sort of understanding, we're going through these two stages. The first stage we're identifying it's a volume of specific stimulating muscular contractions. And then the next stage is to say, well, actually, in the reality it is in fact the dosage of mechanical tension and we're just kind of quantifying that dosage using our volume measurement
0: yeah and so when we talk about a, a more appropriate way to talk about volume is to actually talk about the dose of mechanical tension that that those particular muscles are going to be getting in the training session that's a much more accurate way than just slapping on a bunch of sets and saying here's volume and do muscles grow from x amount of volume well Have we defined the proximity to failure within the sets that are being performed? Because once you start changing those and you're not going to failure and you and I have gone through enough literature to look at this, the results can be wild, right? They can be all over the place. But once you start taking sets of failure, you actually get this very clear response. The majority of the time, almost all the time, they they all kind of line up with each other with the degree of hypertrophy that we're going to expect. Uh, in relation to the number of quote unquote sets done because those sets were taken to failure. So we end up with very similar degrees of what we call uh, mechanical tension. We have this volume, this dose of mechanical tension that the people experience within the training session.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, that, that's probably a good a good segue to start talking about um, some of these these dose responses that we've seen because we actually have been obviously talking about this this last week and sending each other various. Sort of uh, findings that we've been uh, reviewing, and you know, one of the things that uh, is really fascinating to me that is very clear in the literature. If we go back to the kind of dose response meta analyses that have been done over the years, and I think uh, you know, sort of um, those those show a really nice clear picture. One of the key features of that picture is that um, the, the sets that we do across the workout aren't all equal to each other even though we've been talking about you know this dose response and stimulating reps and so on and so on um the sets in the workouts that we do and even the sets across a week that we might do are not all equal to each other in terms of their uh, capacity to stimulate hypertrophy so uh, obviously the, the analysis that we've been talking about shows that if we do just three sets a week um sort of one set three times a week maybe is the most common kind of study design that we 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 usually see we're doing that minimal kind of training program we're kind of hitting around about sort of a five percent increase in muscle size across these standard training programs which might be sort of eight to twelve weeks or whatever i forget the exact numbers um if we wanted to double that rate of growth and sort of hit you know, sort of 10%, um, you know, the instinctive answer for most people is going to be that we need to double the number of sets. So we go from, you know, one set three times a week to two sets three times a week. And that that kind of is the general kind of uh, picture that most people are going to instinctively, I think, uh, kind of reach for. But the reality is these analyses are showing there's actually 18 sets per week or six sets three times a week, which is an enormous jump. And straight away, just from these meta-analyses, what we're seeing, Is that that we have a serious uh, question to answer when it comes to training volume and that question is why are we not seeing this one-to-one relationship between the number of sets that we're doing in a workout and the amount of muscle growth we're actually achieving i think that is a really really interesting question for us to start digging into saying physiologically why is this happening
0: so (laughs) i don't want anybody to gloss over what you just gave them there, if we if we get an x amount of hypertrophy from three sets taking a failure and we'll we'll say it's we'll say five percent away um just to give a number so we have we get a five percent hypertrophy response from three sets taking failure if we want a ten percent response it was 18 sets that's what we're looking at if you look at the, the i think it was the last meta analysis looking at volume right yeah i'll so, put
1: the um, links in my notes
0: yeah Okay, so that, I believe, for the most part, is made up mechanistically of research that has used shorter rest periods. And I I think that um, when you and I have broken down these separately, so when you look at long rest periods and short rest periods, you end up with massive amounts of different outcomes in terms of where the hypertrophy kind of peaks off, where it looks like the threshold has been reached, right?
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't want to sort of jump to the answer too quickly. I think it's really interesting to just sort of pause at this point and, and ask ourselves, why is this even happening? Why are we getting this you know, really remarkable kind of effect that is totally and utterly non, um, well, it's unexpected? It's, it's just um, why would we experience uh, far less hypertrophy in the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever sets of workout compared to the first set? know and obviously um training variables like you just mentioned like rest periods and so on and so forth are absolutely going to make a big impact on uh, that exact sort of relationship but the first question i always have is well why on earth would this even be happening to start with i mean what are our possible options
0: right so if we look at the physiological factors that are going to take effect we have actually have a multitude of them um the first one and we have a nice list here to keep us on track So the maximum stimulus reached um, at a certain point was the translational efficiency increases. So there's going to be a point where no matter what, how much, whether you're looking, what end of the spectrum you're having that no more sets done are going to cause a stimulatory effect that it's going to cause at give us that stimulus where we need adaptations to occur physiologically um, from the training that's been done. And then we of course have central nervous system fatigue that that occurs within the workout itself that's going to impact uh, the degree of stimulus that we're going to be able to achieve. Then we're going to have uh, excitation, contraction, coupling failure. that's going to achieve. And for people who uh, who don't know what that means, basically what that means is that we have a reduction in mechanical tension that will be experienced by the fibers that we're training in the training session. So we talk about mechanical tension a lot and the fact that mechanical tension really is the main driver. And then if we have Excitation contraction coupling failure. That means that we're gonna have a reduction in mechanical tension that the fibers are going to experience. And then of course we have muscle damage that's going to occur due to a multitude of different reasons um, that we're, you know, we're going to go over. But then um, that's going to use some of that um, myofibril protein synthesis rates for repair of the myofibrils uh, instead of going towards the addition of myofibrils. And then we have some pretty good data that's looked across that, of course, uh, of the couple of weeks and then the repeated about effect and all that kind of stuff that goes. So there's a multitude of actual things that come into play there that help determine why we're getting specific outcomes. Now, we don't have an answer for every possible situation, but we have a multitude of physiological things that we know factually that play a part in why we're getting specific amounts of stimulus related to the amount of quote-unquote volume that you're using within the training session.
1: Absolutely and if we just take that list that you've you've given us there um, some of these are going to kick in earlier than others um, you know so for example the, the first item on our list um, the, in, the intrinsic kind of limit that the muscle fiber has for growth from a given uh, sort of stimulus uh, kind of workout if you like that probably isn't going to be making an enormous difference from our first set to our second set. It's probably going to kick in after a couple of sets. So it's probably a kind of something that's going to stop us really achieving much more hypertrophy after maybe five or six sets. It's going to be something that occurs later once the maximum possible stimulus has been reached. Whereas the CNS fatigue, which is basically working by reducing our access to the highest threshold motor units, um, that's probably going to kick in really, really fast. So, that's probably going to be one of those mechanisms that stops us really uh, changing or stops the second set and the third set from being as effective as the first set, for example. Um, and obviously, the excitation contraction coupling failure, the calcium amylated T mechanisms. Um, those are also potentially going to be kicking in very early. Obviously, it's going to depend on the individual. Um, but, you know, those have the potential to kick in very, very early, because as soon as we uh, cause that, and it's going to co- be caused in the most fast twitch fibers, uh, probably first, they are going to, again, stop producing mechanical tension. Um, in contrast, our final uh, mechanism on your list, um, muscle damage, is probably going to be the opposite, more like the the, the intrinsic Uh, kind of limitation of the muscle fibers because um we we tend to see that muscle damage kind of uh, sort of increases uh with increasing number of sets um and actually looks like it increases progressively more with increasing number of sets we have we're actually more at risk of producing more muscle damage with each set as we go more and more through a workout so again that's probably one of those things that's back and loaded in comparison with the other two
0: Yeah. And what's cool is, is that uh, with some of the studies that we're going to talk about today, we actually kind of see that cool uh, relationship and delineation between there. Look, once we've maxed out um, that degree of stimulus, and we're going to talk about, you know, kind of the degree of stimulus can be measured via the degree of myofibril protein synthesis that can be elevated and expressed, is that any sets performed past that, What's cool is we actually do have research that looks at this, any sets performed past that, that really we're not getting that hypertrophy stimulus out of even if myops are elevated because myops is then going to repair the muscle damage from the extra sets. So something you and I have actually kind of put out there and talked about for the last many years, you've talked about for a very long time, is that, hey, there comes a point where all this extra work is just going to go towards more excitation, contraction, coupling failure, getting more of that fatigue, there's going to be more muscle damage that occurs, so these elevated pro- muscle protein synthesis rates that people have talked about in relation to muscle damage is just going through repair and regeneration. It's not doing anything to give us more hypertrophy.
1: Exactly. And I, th- I think really, um, once we start to talk through these these various um, mechanisms that are, that are describing why we see these. Um, very interesting dose responses across the literature, it becomes a very, very interesting kind of discussion because we can now say, well, you know, we, we have an understanding or we're starting to have an understanding of why this happens. What does that then mean practically? Well, you know, it can have a number of very, very interesting practical implications for various different situations it can start to lead us into discussions about training variables you know um, is this kind of dose response um, that we're seeing going to change if we use a different training variable like a rest period duration or if we start to talk about you know maybe stretched position exercises is that likely to have an effect or light load uh, training versus more moderate or heavy load training and these are really fascinating questions because they start to give us some ideas about ways we can change this kind of dose response in favorable ways um you know and and that could be very obviously very valuable for training
0: right absolutely so when we're talking about that um let's let's actually get into explaining again a little bit like the difference because we get both get asked that somebody will ask what's myops and what's MPS or what's all of this stuff. So, when we talk about myops, which is myofibril protein synthesis, and then when we talk about muscle protein synthesis, those are actually two different mechanisms that we're talking about. When we're, we're talking about myops, we're mainly talking about the elevation of protein synthesis that go towards, like I was just saying, the re- repair of the actual myofibrils or the addition of new myofibrils, more sarcomeres, whether we're talking in series or parallel, that's what we talk about when we say hypertrophy, more volume than the muscle, because then now there's more myofibrils, more sarcomeres in there. So when we talk about myops, that's going to, that's basically the elevated muscle protein synthesis at rates that go towards those particular functions. But when we talk about muscle protein synthesis in the mixed muscle protein synthesis way, that is kind of an overall blanket statement towards, hey, it can be going towards, you know, repair to sarcolemma. It can be doing a lot of different things in terms of repair to just the generalized area.
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, some people have argued that maybe we can use muscle in this versus myofibrillar protein synthesis as kind of some kind of metric for how much uh, repair work is going on versus how much hypertrophy work is going on. And I think there is a a kind of a small element of truth in that. But equally, we do have to remember that repair work also does happen to myofibrils. And so, you know, we can't just say, well, if we're seeing myofibrillar protein synthesis, rate elevations that must necessarily mean that we've caused hypertrophy it doesn't mean that at all and we can you know see that happening after exercise that doesn't cause hypertrophy and it's basically just because we've created a lot of muscle damage and we're trying to repair that muscle damage so i think um you know these kind of rate elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis are very interesting to look at you know but ultimately there's always going to be that element of doubt when we're looking at them Is like where is that um, kind of protein being, oh, why is that protein, sorry, being added to the uh, kind of myofibrils? Is it being added because we just damaged one and removed it? Or is it because we're actually adding a completely new one? And I think that that sort of uh, subtlety is is often missed, I think. And it's important that we, we kind of just use the element of care when we're thinking about those kind of studies.
0: Yep. And that is such a... Um... That is such a, a really important distinction to understand in these things, because we can have muscle protein synthesis elevated for a multitude of reasons. But if we were looking at myops, then we get an idea um, of what is go- actually going on due to the training. Now, we have in one of the studies, I don't know if I'm going to be jumping ahead of where we want to be. But I think it was um, in one of the DeMoss studies, Felipe DeMoss did a study that looked at muscle damage over the course, of, I think, four weeks and then had uh, rates, looked at rates of myops and muscle protein synthesis, saw that over the course of the four weeks, and this is kind of an important thing when we're talking about volume, we're trying to kind of set the stage here for understanding myops, because understanding myops and elevated myops is gonna give us an idea about volume in a session and then when that volume needs to be repeated. So um, when they looked at that in terms of muscle damage occurring, there's a couple of cool things about that particular study. And number one is that in the initial of training, muscle damage is gonna be, was very high. And then, so as the muscle damage came down, you could see that the myops then would go towards the hypertrophy. And then there was a linear kind of relationship between muscle damage coming down and then myops going up towards actual, the, the addition of new contractile proteins. So when muscle damage is very high, and mixed muscle protein synthesis is going to go towards mostly the repair of those things until the adaptations are in place so that myops can go towards those additions of new contractile proteins
1: yeah and obviously um you know that work has been instrumental in our understanding of, of how muscle damage now operates in relation to hypertrophy and obviously historically uh, it was believed by many people that muscle damage was actually a driver uh, and and a stimulus itself for um, hypertrophy and now I think uh, it's it's, it's more widely accepted that um, you know when muscle damage happens it's going to detract from hypertrophy by taking its resources away and obviously that work you just described was uh, very much pivotal in, in kind of I think persuading a lot of people of that view uh and but really in terms of what you know we were saying earlier this this is one of our four major kind of mechanisms that's going to limit the benefit of, of additional sets in the workout um, but interestingly, also, it highlights the the role of training variables, because obviously training variables are going to affect the amount of muscle damage that happens. So if we were to do stretch position exercises um, with one, with a certain amount of uh, volume, a certain number of sets to, to failure, but we would also do, you know, sort of in a different uh, workout or a different scenario, uh, contracted position exercises with the same amount of sets to failure, we would expect our, our kind of in- influence or impact or negative influence i guess of this muscle damage to be different across those two workouts which is a really really interesting concept which is almost never ever discussed i mean i have seen it discussed on occasion but it is very rare to see that that the idea that training volume dose responses will be affected by manipulating this factor so we're seeing that manipulating or we're Kind of describing here how manipulating the uh each of these four things to a certain degree we may not be able to manipulate all of them but we can certainly see how we can manipulate muscle damage and um, by changing the exercise that we might be doing we can also do that in exactly the same kind of approach with our excitation contraction coupling failure because obviously uh, both of these two types of fatigue are calcium ion related so anything that causes more muscle damage is also going to cause more calcium ion related fatigue excitation contraction coupling failure in the workout but again if we look at the 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 central nervous system fatigue we now see a different picture because central nervous system fatigue in a workout isn't really caused by the same things that cause calcium ion related fatigue but fundamentally it's going to have the potential to affect the dose response Uh, you know, uh, in much the same way. So that brings us to the kind of idea of of, of the rest periods that you mentioned earlier, because if we're taking shorter rest periods, then we're going to end up with CNS fatigue that's hanging over from a previous set. And now our subsequent sets are gonna be even less effective than the ones we did earlier. So it's going to do the same thing, but probably from a uh, kind of a a, a sort of an earlier point in the workout, and it's going to potentially have quite a big effect on the shape of our dose-response curve. And that's obviously something we've been talking about a lot this week.
0: The interesting part there that I don't think is thought about much in the methodological approach in these, some of the way these are set up, right, <clears throat> is that we, we know very well both of these things occur. We know from velocity law studies that that central nervous system occurs, we know from... Um, like low frequency fatigue research that that excitation contraction, coupling failure uh, uh, occurs. So we we know I call them interferences, right? Like so one I consider a central nervous system interference and the other one is a kind of a peripheral interference. So the, what I mean by interference is we impede our ability to improve high threshold motor use to some degree due to uh, a, a fatigue of the of either supraspinal or spinal level fatigue. So we're either talking like the we're talking the uh, the size of the uh, signal that we can send to recruit motor units or the fact that the motor neurons become uh, somewhat fatigued through repeated muscular contractions, sending those signals over and over and over again. So we have an interference effect that can be caused at the central nervous system level due to short rest periods, due to of uh, specific types of after feedback where uh, we either have like a high degree of pain or we're sore or we're already injured. Or we have other, these, these things can be factored in, but within the workout itself, say if somebody's completely healthy or whatever, we have a multitude of mechanisms that can cause or impede, interfere with our ability to recruit, recruit high threshold motor units. So that means we're gonna have fewer of those larger type two fibers that we're gonna be able to mechanically load. And then on top of that, if we're having to do more and more and more volume, more and more and more sets, whether they're two failure, close to failure, however you want to describe it, we're going to have a larger degree of that calcium ion related fatigue that's going to occur throughout the workout. And then by the end, what we're dealing with is we're not recruiting a lot of a lot of motor units. And then also the ones that are being recruited just are not experiencing high degrees of mechanical tension. Now, what I think what we often see is they when you take those very short rest periods and you're doing high amounts of volume, it. it Incredibly, they have to end up doing higher amounts of volume to get a same degree of stimulus as you get when you take longer rest periods because you're not dealing with as much central fatigue. You are able to recruit more of the high threshold motor units. And then if you're training with a one to two RIR, or you're training two failure, but your repetition ranges are somewhat low, you're not dealing with quite as much calcium related fatigue too. So the outcomes on paper, when people say, why are, why are these so vastly different? is because the methodologies in which they're implemented are also vastly different. So we end up with completely different outcomes in terms of, well, how many, quote, unquote, sets do we need in order to maximize the hypertrophy response?
1: Exactly. I mean, there, there's so many things to say at this point. We could go in, in, in so many different directions. Um <laughs> And you um,
0: and you hit on the point there, too, It's like it even comes back to, for example, like what kind of contraction modes are we focusing on? What kind of muscle length are we focusing on? There's a lot of things. So when we sit down now, and we look at the study, or, you know, if the study comes and we look at it, we're like, well, they did this and that and that and that. And this would have caused these outcomes. And what's pretty cool is once that you get to a point where you understand these uh, these models, and these mechanisms, and you're like, well, these outcomes are going to happen because of all these particular things. They consistently show up that way. But there's more than just saying, I'm going to do five sets of, of bench press for chest, and then I'm going to do three sets for incline, and then this and that and whatever. There's multitude of things that come into play where when you start looking at, say, when they, when they do a study that says we're going to look at a content- concentric contraction only in a high volume versus, say, and eccentric contractions at lower volume, or um, as we went over in the previous podcast, and we do fascicle length measurements, or any of these kind of things. There's so many things that end up coming into play. Where somebody's like, "Just tell me the number of sets to do." We can either make that a very basic conversation. We'll, you know, we'll get to and say, "Here's the basic number that you can probably do to maximize your results," or we can say, "Well, it can be a very complicated and nuanced answer and conversation."
1: Absolutely, and I think um, you know really, at the at the root of um, many misunderstandings about this area is that um, you know fatigue, as we're describing it, is causing a reduction in the stimulus, as you've called it, an interference. You know, we're reducing the stimulus because we're reducing the to one of or both of the two characteristics of a muscular contraction that enable it to produce hypertrophy. The two characteristics that we described at the very beginning when we were talking about what our definition of volume was, which is a number of muscular contractions that meet these two criteria, is a high level of motor unit agreement simultaneously with a high level of mechanical tension at the muscle fiber level. Um, The fatigue mechanisms that we're describing here, calcium amylated fatigue, excitation, contraction, coupling failure, uh, that's going to reduce mechanical tension and our sort of CNS fatigue is going to reduce motor unit recruitment. And so we're actually interfering uh, or reducing the stimulus that we actually need to cause hypertrophy. And yet, um, if we were to talk to a kind of a random sample of people in the fitness industry, I think we would probably find that most people see fatigue as actually a, a, an element of the stimulus, or at least uh, indirectly kind of involved in the stimulus that causes hypertrophy and the reality is as we're describing it here it doesn't it actually causes a problem it actually reduces our capacity to produce hypertrophy i think ultimately that's behind a lot of the um, sort of the the lack of understanding about the, the, the volume debate which is that the more fatigue we generate the less hypertrophy we're actually stimulating
0: That actually what's funny is it's not even just like the average person thinks that the literature itself used to actually state. You're you're laughing. The literature used to actually state. I can go tell you which one. There's a there's a um, um, antagonist uh, of superset study that says that that the using antagonist supersets rather than just doing the straight sets failure caused what they could consider higher degrees of fatigue. Therefore, it would be a better option to use because they had the reduction in performance. And so there actually used to be this thinking, um, this very pervasive kind of thinking that if something caused a high degree of fatigue, that we were actually getting a, a higher degree of stimulus as well. So if you had a reduction in performance, like, oh, well, this was much harder, so then that means the stimulus is actually higher, when it's actually the opposite, it's actually the stimulus is lower. And I think that there's there's this, thinking that still stems from some of that stuff that is like, well, if we get a really, if something's really hard and it's really tiring and we do a drop set of 30 reps and this and that, and so forth and so on, um, then that's going to give us this high degree of stimulus that stuff, other stuff's not going to get. And we're going to do, we're going to do that leads into like uh, our next one that we're going to do metabolic stress in a couple of weeks to tackle that guy. But there's that belief, right? That is, I'm training super hard and I'm like, I have all this fatigue that I'm occurring due to doing high amounts of volume, and reps, drop sets, all this kind of stuff, that the stimulus is equal to the fatigue. I think that's the best way to describe it, right? It's like, if I have this degree of fatigue, that the stimulus is equal to the fatigue. And it's really the opposite is that the greater the fatigue is, the less the stimulus that we actually end up getting out of. Absolutely. And if I can
1: kind of just Um, sort of anticipate a uh, kind of a criticism at this point which is the criticism I I often see people say well yes but fatigue increases motor unit recruitment and the answer to that is no it absolutely does not Um, it's repeated uh, across uh, various places people always uh, kind of uh, shortcut the situation fatigue is absolutely not affecting motor unit recruitment if it did it would be catastrophic Um, basically (laughs) when we are are fatigued (laughs) when we are fatigued we must uh, if we want to continue the exercise, we must voluntarily increase. My that,
0: that is a consistent pet peeve of mine. I do see the same argument. They'll say, well, fatigue causes greater. I say, no, only if we it's a voluntary thing. We have to yeah. actually voluntarily. I remember you making an infographic about this one time, and I don't know as many people can read you as well as I do because we've talked so long. But I was like, Chris must be pretty frustrated with this this one because I remember the the verbiage in the infographic. It's like, no, you have to do it. You have to voluntarily make the effort, and then that causes us the- the greater degree of motor unit recruitment but fatigue itself doesn't actually do that at all it simply is a way to give us feedback say hey do you want to keep doing this and if you do you're going to have to create a higher degree of voluntary effort and then we'll recruit more motor units for you
1: yeah i mean if fatigue were actually taking over us and taking control of motor unit recruitment it would be spectacularly catastrophic <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it just we would we would become it just doesn't bear thinking about. Obviously, we have to voluntarily choose to. Um, the only way of, I can uh, think
0: of that. In, the only way I can think of that in my head is like it's like a physical Tourette syndrome, right? Like the fatigue kicks in and somebody just starts thrashing about with like maximum amount of force. That's it. Like, yeah, that's. I mean, essentially, it's what we see in BFR and stuff like that. It's like we have a, an onset of fatigue that occurs faster. Well, we have to apply the effort rate. So the fatigue itself is countered. If there was one thing that really changed in my programming with our groups and why people see progressive overload occurring at rates they really hadn't seen before, and that was managing fatigue better. And you and I have had this conversation. It's not one of those super sexy topics of conversation, but you we've we've talked about this so much over the past few years. It's like once you understand how can I maximally mitigate fatigue and still get that high degree of stimulus. Gains just they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and they don't come like new games. But if you even if you're an advanced guy, if you learn how to mitigate those fatigue factors, you can still see significant progress occurring, even at an advanced level. When I say significant, it's pretty pretty consistent compared to if you don't understand how to implement these things into a programming, into a way of programming, that you can keep fatigue to a minimum so that you can still get those high degree, that high degree of motor unit recruitment and minimize the excitation, contraction, coupling failure.
1: Absolutely. And if I can, if I can just expand on that a little bit, because you mentioned their training status, and I think it's such an important uh, kind of uh, point, because if we sort of, um, know we don't have obviously don't have good data in the in the literature about this but i think it's it's largely widely accepted that as we are as as beginners we tend to see a more rapid rate of muscle growth up to maybe um you know just let's put some very broad numbers around this maybe six to twelve months something around that kind of period of time i think it obviously depends on the uh, level of, of of sort of activity of the person before they start but you know those kind of numbers and then we kind of this intermediate period, which maybe again lasts a couple of years. And then after that, we kind of start a more advanced level where, uh, you know, uh, and the muscle growth basically is, is sort of um, slower as we progress. So beginners, obviously, very fast, intermediate, somewhere in the middle, and then advanced lifters, you kind of have to kind of squint and say, is it actually happening at all at this point? So, you know, in those three categories, I think, but at the moment, there isn't a widely accepted model about why that happens. Uh, the model I'm currently kind of working on, and one I think is, is most likely, is that it, it, basically as we progress through those tri- three training phases, we essentially reach plateaus in um, the size of the muscle fibers, because we know that already know that muscle fibers reach a maximum kind of uh, size and can't grow anymore. Um, and basically, uh, maybe beginners have. The ability to grow all of their muscle fibers of their high threshold motions. Whereas when we go to a kind of an intermediate status, um, we only have maybe access to the top two thirds in terms of not access, but in terms of responsiveness, top two thirds of those uh, high threshold motions, they're the only ones that can still grow. And then maybe as an advanced individual, an advanced lifter, the only muscle fibers we're now capable of growing are the ones in the top uh, kind of uh, sort of third, perhaps or whatever the the, the amount may be. But ultimately, what this means is if this this model is valid, I think there's reasons to believe it is. What this suggests is that the more advanced we are, um, the more problematic CNS fatigue and uh, excitation-contraction coupling failure become. Because basically, um, those two types of fatigue are starting at the very top, muscle fibers, the least oxidative, which is obviously the most Fast fibers, they're going to be the ones that are most affected by the calcium mediated related fatigue and mechanisms. And uh, in terms of CNS, obviously, uh, the highest threshold motions are going to be the first uh, to be, you know, lost access to, I guess. So essentially, the more advanced we are, the more problematic these uh, two types of fatigue are going to be, and the more likely it is that our additional sets in a workout are going to be less effective. Well, if we now contrast the implications of that with what the uh, kind of average uh, sort of responses for advanced lifters when they're trying to make progress and they're starting to find that progress is not happening the average response i tend to see in our industry is that people will go we'll just do more volume throw more volume at the problem and you'll start to see a bigger uh, kind of response in those and those advanced lifters well the reality is that they're much more likely to experience what we could call junk volume than an intermediate or a beginner. So training status is going to have a really big impact, I think, on on this particular population. And the answer, I don't think, to the question of how do I make progress as an advanced lifter, do I just throw more volume at the question? I think the answer is no. We probably want to actually consider trying to raise motor unit recruitment levels in that population trying to get access to more muscle fibers that are capable of growth in the workouts that we're doing so the question isn't if you want to simplify down to literally kind of a sort of a very simple binary question is it volume or intensity well i think the answer is it's intensity i mean i think i have sort of arguments about exactly how to create that intensity because I think some people would argue I just kind of do drop sets and those kind of things well that's not intensity in the way that I'm describing it here but in terms of trying to access more mode rather than trying to do more volume
0: I think that that um what that a lot of that is too is that you end up as you stated with a lot of muscle fibers that you've been using that have reached their maximum capacity at whatever joint angles that you've been training them at So you've been recruiting those, the motor units that control those fibers over and over and over and over and over again. And then eventually what has to happen is you have to be able to access and recruit motor units you currently have not been using. And I think that that what has to happen there is that you have to get kind of specific with your exercise selection at that point if you're trying to get out kind of that last, and we're talking about high level bodybuilders here that are really trying to get out that last one to 3%, or actually like specialize in something like they really are trying to grow, like, you know, they're trying to get some growth out of say the the distal part of their lateral tricep head or whatever, but that there are ways that we can kind of access those functions. We do know that regional hypertrophy is a thing and we do know that there's ways to actually preferably uh, access motor units that are going to be probably more apt to be recruited there if we're if we're stressing a uh, muscle at a specific joint angle range of motion if we have different resistance profiles that we use maybe we haven't been using a specific or a specific resistance profile through a joint angle range of motion so there's a multitude of things in there but like what you're saying i think is spot on is like when you get a beginner guy and he's doing uh say basic lifts or whatever Um, you know, everything is going to grow because none of those motor units have ever been used um, uh, until he started training. And then after a while, all the adaptations take place, the neural adaptations, the muscular adaptations take place. And then all of those motor units have been recruited tons and tons of times. And we have to get to a place where now we're like, oh, we have to be able to access and recruit motor units that have not currently been used because those are ones that are controlling fibers that we haven't accessed yet
1: yeah and as you say there's there's two reasons for that it could be simply that we haven't managed to get a sufficiently high enough level of central motor command because of the way we've been training you know so we might choose to train in a slightly different way i mean there's ways that we can train that will increase the overall level of central motor command that we're capable of generating and therefore create high levels of improvement, increment um, you know even without changing the the kind of the movement band for example we can move from a uh, kind of a, a bilateral exercise to a unilateral exercise, and that's going to increase the level of muscle recruitment in the target muscle without actually changing, uh, you know, the fundamental strength uh, curve of the exercise or anything else about it. Um, but also, as you said, there is going to be um, regional hypertrophy occurring due to things like strength curve and, and, and various other factors um, you know, sort of, um, plane of motion and that kind of thing, depending on the joint, um, that are also going to affect which part of the muscle we're actually training. And that's going to, if we've been training with the same exercises for two years or so, then obviously there's going to be scope for growth simply by changing the exercises that we're doing for those muscle groups. So there's definitely, uh, two really kind of interesting, uh, sort of parts to that equation when it comes to training status.
0: Yep. So that ties in, um, because, like you said a lot of people will say well i've hit this plateau and then their immediate answer is i need to increase volume on doing everything um that has always felt like the most backwards thing to me the guy that i always thought of as was like the thinking man's bodybuilder was dorian yates and if you ever if you went through dorian's training career the more he progressed the less his volume became the, the more he focused on how do i get the most out of specific exercises so he He was kind of dialed into that mode of thinking a long time ago and saying, I need to train the muscle at this particular joint angle, and then I need to use this particular exercise. But he didn't, the times that he tried to scale his volume up, and he talked about this uh, several times, that he would actually consistently see a regression in his training. So Dorian had a lot of these little moving parts figured out pretty early on. He's like, he knew he needed to progress. He needed to Progressive overload was the way he knew his, his training was working, right? And then as he progressed, he realized, okay, if I want complete, more complete development and to continue development, I've actually got to stress this muscle at some different angles or use a, resistant, a different resistance profile. He didn't call it a resistance profile, but that's what it was. And then his volume got scaled down. So every time he would try to scale his volume up, he would see a regression in that and say, I can't do that much. Um and I've had I've heard people say that well Dorian would could have been better if he'd used more volume. I, I think he tried to figure that out and that didn't, yeah, that didn't work for him. So yeah, I've actually heard that. So um moving <laughs> moving on to the um,
1: actually uh, Paul, there's a, there's an interesting so the, go ahead. There's a really interesting um kind of um extra point here that we've I think we've been asked. Um, a couple of times, um, but I don't think it made it onto our list of, of topics, which is uh, kind of a little bit related to the, to the points we've just been making. Um, when people are interested in volume, they often uh, want to know whether um, different exercises count for um, certain muscle groups and in terms of calculating their overall volume. And it's it's a really interesting question. I think Um relates to um, the training status uh, sort of point we've just been making. So just to kind of um, be very clear what we're saying here. No, I
0: I know where you're going. I wanted to tackle this one too as part of it. Cool.
1: Um, So basically the question I've often had is, you know, if I'm doing bench presses, does that count as a, um, you know, if I do three sets of bench press, does that count as three sets for the triceps? Or do I need to kind of create some kind of metric where it's like a half a set for triceps or something like that?
0: To me, on the surface, it seems I know there's a lot of people that give blanket answers, but since you and I nuance the living crap out of most things, I think number one comes back to something we just discussed your training status. Are you a brand new beginner that's doing bench presses for the first time? I think you can, can, can literally count a bench press as a one step for chest, shoulders and triceps. I think it could be as simple as that for like a beginner who's going in because he's going to get significant stimulus across everything that's involved in pressing from the shoulder flexion to elbow extension, everything that's that's connected in them. And if you're a more advanced person and we have seen this, too, I know people sometimes people don't like EMG activation or whatever but we we've talked about there's actual studies out there that shows more advanced guys have different level of recruitment patterns throughout a press than a beginner does right so it all depends on your training status number one and i think the other thing it depends on is how you're performing the exercise and the resistance profile within that exercise too so it's not always a simple answer so if we were doing something like nobody ever talks about pin presses but us but if you were doing a pin press in and say a power wreck you set it up to where you had pins that you're pressing into uh, and you're not getting full lockout. You're only doing half the range of motion. Well, comparatively, let's say, what if you strap on some bands to a bench press and do a full range of motion bench press? And then the, you have an ascending resistance curve that's hardest at lockout. Or you can, are those two things, those two things are, complete, are not comparable to me, right? Those are two different types of stimulus. So one is going to have far less stimulus for the triceps on it. And the other one's going to have far more stimulus for the pecs. So, if we're talking really basic, that's a super making things super complicated. But if we're talking about a guy that's going in and he's doing what we consider like traditional exercises and he's doing a chest press, whether it's a chest press machine or he's doing some dumbbells or whatever, I think you could say that the even a guy that's advanced, the, the novice guy, I think you can count it all, right? He, he can get away with far less. He, he can do some squats or some leg curls, leg extensions or whatever. And that's all going to be you know, except for the squats would just be like quads and then the leg curls would be the hamstrings. But if he's doing, I think it comes into more play when there's multi-joint movements happening, right? In a single joint movement, we're doing a tricep push down, we're doing triceps and we're doing elbow flexion. We're for the most part, we're doing, you know, we're focusing on biceps. But if we're doing a pull, like a pull-up or we're doing a row or we're doing a chest press or a shoulder press, where do we count the volume? for the synergistic muscles in terms of weekly volume or that workout volume? It's a good question. I think it's a pretty good question because I think when people hear volume, if they hear you got to do six sets or eight sets for a muscle group in a, in a, in a workout, and this is something we're going to hit on. I think it's super, super interesting when we get to the myops and the one set, three set, eight set, 12 set stuff. When you do a set of bench presses are uh, less less, Let's look at intermediate to advanced guys. So, we kind of understand out of the way that beginner guys are going to get a, a pretty good stimulus on everything they're training, right? So, intermediate and advanced guys, if he's doing a set of incline dumbbell press and he's going to failure, I think it's hard to separate, um, for example, when you're talking the pecs and the delts, right? It's pretty, it's kind of difficult to separate the pecs from the interior delts, um, depending on stuff like bench angle. So, <laughs> and the way it's performed. So, um, it all again, every time that I try to go through this to figure out, my brain starts doing that and going, well, what if it's being done this way? And what if it's being done that way? So, I'm gonna let you talk now because that's again, that's how my brain starts going. And I'm, and on like the basis of just saying something that sounds good on social media, like if you do a set of bench press, you count it for half a set for shoulders, half a set for triceps. I always think my brain goes, there's a multitude of factors there that can make that either so or not so altogether.
1: Exactly. And I think um, basically, if we start with the training status issue, training status basically is going to um, mean that um, in the model that I'm working with at the moment, that um, fewer muscle fibers are actually going to be responsive in those more advanced lifters. So essentially, unless we're reaching a, very high level of muscle activation in a muscle, we're not really going to be creating as much uh, you know, hypertrophy as, as, as we would want to. So essentially, um, if we're doing an exercise, multi-joint exercise, and one of the prime movers or synergists or however we want to describe it, isn't quite getting to that high level of activation, then it's not going to be treated as a stimulating repetition for the purpose of that muscle group. So essentially, if somebody is um, performing an exercise, And um, one of the prime movers is not quite hitting that whatever level is necessary to reach those muscle fibers that are capable of growth, then it's just basically going to count as a zero. Um, Whereas, as you've been describing in beginners, that's never going to be the case. We're always going to be getting into that motor unit pool of muscle fibers that are capable of growth. So we're always going to be counting it as a full set. And intermediates are probably going to be somewhere in the middle, which is kind of not surprising why some people have started talking about half sets, because that's probably pretty much what it does in, in many situations but taking it a step further and kind of building on what you were saying about you know changing exercises and changing the way in which the exercises are performed um what we've seen in in, in studies that have kind of um sort of brushed up against the concept of neuromechanical matching as, as, a, as a concept to to manipulate there's some really interesting data showing that basically um Different people are going to, and bench press is a great example here, different people are going to perform the bench press with different contributions or relative contributions from the three major prime movers. So some people are going to be more pec dominant, some people are going to be more delt dominant, some people are going to be more triceps dominant. So, you know, obviously we've talked about this before because, you know, you've described to me that you're probably quite delt dominant in the bench press. I'm extremely triceps dominant in the bench press basically if we're dominant in a particular muscle and the brain is going to send uh, much more of the central motor to those muscles that are dominant in that exercise so basically even if i get to the level of you know training status which would be classified as advanced i could probably still be counting bench presses or triceps Exercise a full set because I am basically using my triceps to do the bench press. And actually, you know, if I ever, you know, you ever seen me do one, that's pretty much what you can see happening. Uh, whereas, you know, the same might be applicable in your situation, whereas, you know, the delta is actually doing so much of the work that it probably is um, kind of receiving a full stimulus. We tend to think, well, if the muscle is strong, then it's going to do less. Well, no, if the muscle is strong, then the body is going to send the majority of the central command to come into that place and it's going to basically rely on that muscle as much as it possibly can. That- It's
0: always, the body is always going to opt be for using what is most efficient. It's not going to, um, I've heard some weird theories about this, where it's like if a muscle doesn't have leverage in the the central nervous system, I heard this, you're going to make a face, but I've heard this, that the central nervous system, if a muscle doesn't have leverage at a particular joint angle range of motion, that the central nervous system would send a greater amount of recruitment there to bring it in more. That is a dumb, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. Like that makes no sense from an efficiency standpoint. Um, If a muscle has a lot of leverage at a particular joint angle range of motion for you, then it only makes sense that the central nervous system would say, this is what you are best with. So that's what I'm going to allocate motor unit resources to. That is what the body tries to be deficient at everything that it does, right? It's a survival thing. So if... You are really a really good dominant. We talked about this with deadlifts before. You know whether deadlifts are a back exercise or whether they're a glute exercise or whatever. Well, for some people who have a really strong, like spinal erectors, right, and really strong through the back musculature, and their actual leverages, anthropometry is in a way that sets them up that they can pull well with though with their back mus- musculature. It might be a dominant back exercise for them. Whereas another person, if they're really great at loading their glutes with it and getting their glutes involved in that hip, it doesn't mean the hip extension doesn't occur. Clearly, it does. But what is doing the majority of the work in those has some individual variants that does occur. And it's like you said, if you take 10 people, and let's say five of those people are kind of dominant deadlift back pullers, and then five of them are dominant, like glute, you know, hip extension dominant type people, then the deadlift is a glute exercise mostly for those glue dominant people and it's a back exercise for those back dominant people so as you said when we get into those advanced and i think this becomes more pronounced and we do what's what's great is we do see that in studies as we become more advanced these um places that where, we, where we're our strongest those suits become more that becomes more pronounced as we get advanced so as you're saying we could get to a point where if you're a really great chest presser where you might have almost no triceps involved in it due to number one the increased amount of muscle mass that reduced the to the change in the way you you recruit motor units due to that exercise so it might be almost no tricep stimulation for you at all so in order to get good tricep stimulation you would have to go to a single joint movement where you had to just use the the elbow extensions
1: exactly and a different person is going to experience a totally different um kind of uh, scenario i mean Um, somebody who's very very triceps dominant is going to be sitting on the chest press machine basically experiencing something that feels like a triceps extension (laughs) uh, speaking from personal experience i mean it's it's a very very kind of interesting situation where we it literally is impossible for us to say you know um is this exercise count as half a set of triceps well the answer is in your case it may be one set it may be half a set it may be zero sets it absolutely depends on how the exercise is being performed which comes back to how you are starting to describe this whole area which is you know giving examples of different variations of the bench press because that then allows us to start to um, kind of i'm not going to say fix but um, kind of um, manipulate some of these uh, issues because if somebody is doing a bench press and they're finding they are very triceps dominant then we say well, okay well what can we do that actually will move the um contribution away from the triceps and towards some of the other muscle groups. well you know obviously we can use a wider grip and there's you know, various other things we could do but you know you can actually start to manipulate the exercise that we're doing to change the focus if that's what we want to do if we wanted to make it into an exercise that has a very very kind of broad uh, kind of reach that uh, requires all three of the major uh, prime movers to contribute equally we can probably start to get to that point if we uh, spend time actually manipulating those specific training variables um, to make the exercise um, sort of send or make the brain send the central motor command to those places more equally instead of allowing it to send it to just one place but ultimately uh, the question that we we're asked uh, you know have been asked many times I think there isn't an actual answer to it it is an individual uh, thing that we have to say
0: I have never, I've been asked that so many times and I see it have popped up a lot for you lately, I think, because we have that intermix of certain like followers now. And I get asked that all the time and I don't answer it because again, it it's a, it's a fairly, it's a more nuanced conversation than it seems like on the surface, rather than someone simply saying a press is, is half a set for triceps or half a set for delts. I'm like, for a beginner, it's probably a full set. For an intermediate, you could make some of those assumptions. For an advanced guy, probably not. So the training experience is going to play a large part in this. Um, By the time I think a guy gets to be advanced, he's just opting to go with more times than not what he feels strongest with. And that also comes back to the motor unit recruitment stuff, right? Because a lot of advanced guys don't want to get away from doing exercises the way that feels best to them. And the way they feel strongest. So they just keep recruiting the same motor units over and over and over again. And then they wonder why, okay, why have I plateaued out? I'm like, well, you don't really want to change anything. And then when you change uh, to doing it a different way, so that you're going to recruit different motor units, you don't want to do that because you feel weaker. It doesn't, it feels more natural at that time. Uh, one of the things I'll give a great example of this is I was a really, really great overhead presser. I had almost a 400 uh, pound overhead press, uh, but I used a more of a narrow grip um and use a lot of delts and triceps right but my bench press itself was not much more than my overhead well it was my my incline press was almost as much as my bench press so because i was very dominant with with delts and triceps right but not so much with pecs so i was great at overhead press i was great at incline flat press because i couldn't get them quite as involved as much not so much um but in overhead pressing what i was going to get out there is that if somebody's like, well, I don't really get a, a great delt stimulus in an overhead press. Doing something as simply as widening your grip out a little bit to take that elbow angle out from the triceps as much uh, can help make it a little bit more of a delt dominant movement. So, anytime that we need to start playing with getting different motor unit recruitment in there and we start changing joint angles, that's what's going to happen because now we're saying, hey, I'm going to use this muscle in a way I've been asking it my like my body to use it before. It's really a it sounds like one of those Jane Fonda simple things, like we're going to ask our body confusion principle to use it before, but it's a real thing. So if we've been using a specific grip for a press or whatever, um, and now we change those things up, we actually do have to use different motor units in order to perform it that way because we haven't been doing it that way before But that doesn't answer I, or I guess we did answer the whole is is a press half a set or whatever i don't I, I think that that has needs context with the experience life of the of the guy that's training I, I think that you can't just slap that on as a like as just across the board and even i think one of the things i think about there we could go on about this topic for a long time even the exercise itself what if you were using a bench press machine where the resistance profile was ascending so that it was way harder at lockout even if you were a good pec dominant guy and it was It was, uh, you had very little resistance uh, where you're back in kind of shoulder extension and then you're pressing and then it gets very hard at the end. Are you using a lot of PECs? PECs don't have very good leverage there. Triceps have to lock out. So, or is is it now more of a triceps exercise? There's so many variables there. So I think to say something as simple as how do you quantify volume in that way? Really just the experience of the lift.
1: Yeah, it's totally an individual um, answer. It's not something that we can simply say, this is, you know, one set, this is zero sets, this is half a set. It's, it's absolutely going to be down to the individual's leverages and their training history and all of that that kind of thing. So, um, you know, unfortunately, not everything has a simple answer. Um, and many things in physiology have complicated answers. Um so yeah, um, so in terms of our um, our next items on our list, I think we were going to kind of uh, sort of get to a point where we give some uh, kind of more dose response uh, sort of numbers uh, for what we think is actually going on with the with the volume debate.
0: So we've kind of laid the groundwork for myops right I think that's the instead of like focus, so we don't really need to focus on muscle protein synthesis quite as much we, we, we want to look at what is the myops response in regards to, um to ball. Vol- so when we talk about volume again, we're talking about for the most part, we're talking about sets to failure. We're very, very close to failure.
1: Yeah. So just um for context, what we're saying here is that when we want to establish the dose response of um sort of uh, you know the, the, the hypertrophy uh that we're getting in response to the number of sets we're doing there's going to be two ways that we're going to start answering this question the first way is basically to say as we do more and more sets does that cause more and more um elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis myops rates uh, and then secondly uh, uh obviously the second thing we would look at is to say well in long-term training studies um do the uh you know sort of increased number of sets lead to more hypertrophy and what is our kind of um, sort of relationship between the number of sets and the amount of hypertrophy does it kind of continue increasing forever does it kind of reach a plateau and then uh, decrease and the same thing can be said for the post-workout elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis of course the post-workout elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis is always going to be somewhat limited by the, the muscle damage question, but obviously it's still going to be data that we're going to want to look at. So um, yeah, let's look at that one first.
0: Okay, so let's set the, I think we can set this up in a kind of a fun kind of way, right? And that is we have a couple of studies that look on something as simple as one set versus three sets um, for muscle protein synthesis that occurs And I think this is important for people to understand because it does kind of play into the frequency thing. But what we're trying to get at is how many, how many, quote unquote, sets, what's the volume and mechanical tension that we need within a training session to kind of maximize uh, results. So we have um, we have the one, the bird study um, that looked at uh, one set uh, versus three sets. Um, and it was, it was just a leg extension. So it was like, it was a, a set to failure at 70% of one RM. And basically from baseline, uh, it was one set versus three sets. And at five hours, post-training it was about, uh, it was about 130% of elevation for muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and for the sheet three sets group, it was about 210%. And then we fast forward to. Uh, 29 hours later, where it was back to baseline for the one set group. And then it was at still at 130% for the three set group. Now, what I find interesting about that was that one, literally one set to failure gave us a pretty, what I would consider a substantial increase in muscle protein synthesis. Um, and I, I, I know I said, we talk about just miles, but my point here is like one set alone gives us some stimulus, uh, like regardless of the fact people's like well that's not enough for this or that or whatever but one set itself actually does give us some stimulus
1: i think the bird study is my protein synthesis rate however, is it is I it yeah, I think is it mine yeah, yeah i think so
0: okay well then that's even better i couldn't remember yeah. no, okay i'm going to my notes here so
1: i think okay, i think so. the reason i think the reason that you, you you thought it was uh, muscle protein synthesis because i think the abbreviation they use in the study is mps um <laughs> Um, rather than myops, which is the one that a lot of people are starting to use as abbreviation now. But I think actually, when we look at the definition, I think it's myofibrilla. We can go and uh, have a quick check now. Um, yeah, it looks like it's myofibrilla protein synthesis. Okay, so,
0: yeah, it's the yeah it's the one that came. Okay, so I said bird, but I think it's, it's, it's Stu's group, Stu Phillips' group. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love I love Stu's work. We one of our things is that we don't we don't bring names up, but I think in a positive connotation uh name look we we really like Stu's the, the work that comes out of Stu's lab. They do phenomenal research. Um and they yeah, they did use my ops here. You're right. So what's cool is about this is that uh despite the fact that one set gets poo-pooed on all over the internet anytime you talk about one set, we get a significant stimulus from one set. Now, this is important to lay this groundwork because when we talk about, uh, we'll get into when we talk about bro splits and sets and all that kind of stuff, it's important to understand like one set to failure gave us a, a stimulus that lasted for up to 29 hours. That means we were anabolic for 29 hours post one set.
1: At least, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then three sets took us to, we were still at 130%. So that's that's just from three sets of leg extension. So these are significant, right? These are significant. So when we go from one set to three sets, we're looking at, like I said, five hours, it was 130% elevated for the one set. Uh, five hours, it was 210% elevated for the three sets. And then 29 hours later, 130% for the three set. And we were back to baseline for the one set. So once we start, the the question from there is, once we start adding volume sets to failure, once we start adding sets to failure, where do we we have to determine where would we see a, the threshold for the majority of people? There's always going to be outliers. People like to bring this up. We're talking about when we look at this stuff. Where are we going to see the majority of people hit a threshold for getting that maximum amount of of myofibrile protein synthesis that's the stimulus that we're looking for from training and then where does that tend to die off so i think that's kind of what we want to kind of determine here right Is like how many sets to give us that maximum expression of myops and then where does that talk about because you like to say hey look either muscle is being repaired it's being built or you're atrophying that there's it doesn't ever just sit there and be like i'm gonna hang out here for a while that's that's kind of also the the it, it um um, reduces that belief. There's a lot of body, bodybuilders that call it like set points. So like you build muscle and then you hold it for a while, but there has to be stimulus going on. It just doesn't hang around for no reason. So we're talking about this. We have to what we talk about the how do we maximize what's the what's the 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 volume of mechanical tension that we need to maximize that expression of myops, and then how long do we get that expression for in some degree? So I think that's kind of the question, right?
1: Sorry, I thought you were going to carry on talking about no, no, I was saying.
0: So if we if we're looking at one, I think a good place to start was one. So we see with one, hey, there's we still get a stimulus there with three, right? It's significantly more, and then still elevated twenty nine hours, one hundred thirty percent after twenty nine hours. So there, when we extrapolate that up, and we start to look at that out. We said earlier, if you want to double from three sets to get the double amount of hypertrophy stimulus, you have to do 18 sets. But that needs some context and qualifiers, too. So, yeah, if we're, that,
1: that was per week. Um So, three yeah. sets per week versus 18 sets per week. I mean, uh, in terms of the, the data you're describing here, I mean, you started off with that really great description of the. Of the bird study. Um, and then obviously the same group has done a lot of other great work. And, and you mentioned to me earlier this week uh, a more recent study, uh, I believe from the same group that's uh looked at higher volumes. I think it was it eight versus 12 sets. I forget well, exactly.
0: That part. was yeah, perfect segue. That's exactly where I wanted to go. I just wanted to say I want to set the uh the tone for people understanding um, because you and I had some really good discussions this week about this topic and understanding why it's maybe possible that some of the bro splits that they've used and they checked on training a muscle once a week compared to multiple times a week have potentially shown that, Hey, there's maybe not a big difference. Now there, again, that's another long, nuanced discussion, but depending on how the splits laid out, that might be true simply because of the fact that there's still stimulus, some stimulus going on. Right. We talked about that, like something in relation to what we were just talking about. So if you do an overhead press, you know, you're going to get shoulders, but you're going to get a little, little bit of pecs in there too. So it depends on how many sets you're doing. So there's what I can call training overlap to where if you're doing three chest pressing on Monday, you're doing a chest pressing on like Thursday or whatever, you're, there's some overlap that happens there where they're both getting some stimulus. The degrees will vary, but they're still, they're still getting some stimulus. Absolutely.
1: Um, and that's that's something I remember as, as talking about actually. And the point here, for me, which is really interesting, is that basically these kind of studies that have shown really robust increases in myofibrillar protein synthesis after a single set. Also, the studies that have shown hypertrophy after uh, you know single sets, um, you know, those are are basically showing us that. You know, we can actually create a uh, maybe a very small stimulus, um, but it is a meaningful stimulus. and It's going to move us out of that sort of catabolic state for a period of time post-workout. If we're doing a bro split, but um, as we've said, maybe, uh, you know, we're actually doing an exercise that has uh, some, uh, you know, uh, triceps in it or delts in it but it's not primarily a delt or a triceps exercise but we're doing that as part of a workout later in the week we're technically going to be training that muscle twice a week even though the bro split might be telling us that on paper we're actually only training it once a week the reality is we are probably training it twice a week uh, and as a result even if that's only a small contribution it's going to nudge us out of that catabolic state and basically allow us to kind of coast until the next time we actually are training that muscle you know in a, in a very targeted way so ultimately those kind of uh, bruce bits and i think this is the point you were you were making uh, it basically aren't really training muscle one time a week They're they're often training the muscle twice a week
0: and that would, of course, depend on how you split. For example, if you do like a chest back split on like a Monday and you do did a, a, like a shoulders and arms stuff like on Thursday or whatever, there's going to be some overlap most likely in how in the exercise you do. So that's why I think when we talk about and then if you did say like a quads on Tuesday and then you did some glutes and hamstrings on Friday, like even if you did something as as like a hip, like a hip thrust on Friday, there's still a little bit of quads that are going to come in there. So it's not, you're not getting that detraining effect. So in essence, somebody might say that's an upper lower split, but however you split, I've never seen a a bro split split out where you did not have that overlap occurring in there somewhere. It's going to happen somewhere. And I think that's why ultimately we don't see like these massive differences. I think if you were just using pure isometric or uh, pure isolation exercises or a single single joint exercises, you might see some differences there, but most of the time when they do these, they're using normal routine, right? In some way, shape or form. So there's an overlap that occurs in the pro split.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we literally have to be talking about sort of limiting, you know, lat exercises to, uh Pullovers and uh, machine pullovers. And even then, it's going to be really tricky to kind of right. say, well, have, have you really got no triceps in that? Because I think there's probably some triceps. Yeah, there would that. be,
0: there were, even um, if you did exactly. So if you're doing a pullover, I'd be like, well, there's some pecs in there, there's some triceps in there. So there's, some, there you're yeah, not, you can't yeah, exactly. really just limit it to lats.
1: So even so, it's going to be very difficult to do that kind of thing. But basically, yeah, the point we're making here is that even if we try and set up a a routine so we're only training a muscle group once a week, we're inevitably going to probably end up training it twice a week, at least uh, sufficiently to move us out of that catabolic state. The link uh, we're making here is to uh, the uh, the kind of the, the myofibrillar protein synthesis rate elevations occurring after just a single set are very, very robust. Uh, that was kind of how we ended up on this on this kind of uh, digression, I guess, or diversion or whatever it is.
0: Okay, which that, so now that we've set the stage for that, now we can get to the one that we both found really interesting was that um, how long myofibrillar protein synthesis could actually uh, extend out. Uh, and this, this was the, this was, this is the one we can, I feel like that we can really focus on was the eight, is it eight sets to 12 sets? I want to say it's eight sets to 12 sets, isn't
1: it? I'm just looking now. It's, um, yeah. So six sets per exercise. So I guess that must be, um, So the control group is four sets of leg press and knee extension. So that's eight sets, and therefore the six sets per exercise. Yes. So we're going from eight sets to twelve sets, and basically there's no sort of significant difference in terms of the um, of of the. Okay,
0: so there's some interesting things that happens in that particular uh, study, and then of course, like these will these will all be up on your Patreon, uh, so people can look at these. So the interesting thing that happens there is that there was actually a greater increase in myops for the 12-set group than the eight-set group. And what that came back to you and I discussing immediately was the fact that over the course of the 12 weeks, the 12-set week, the twelve set group did not have more hypertrophy than the eight-set group, but they did have higher, higher rates of myops. To me, that's really as soon as I saw that, I'm like, oh, well, that's because the 12 set group had muscle, more muscle damage. So that was a really easy. So somebody looking at that might see that and go, well, but this group had more myops. I'm like, right, because that also that you need myofibrillar protein synthesis to go towards repair muscle damage. So what we're looking at there that kind of plays back into what we talked about earlier, right? When We talked about muscle damage and excitation, contraction, coupling failure and all of those things. Greater degrees of volume. Can often just essentially be us doing junk volume that where we now have to allocate uh, resources towards repair uh, and recovery that didn't do anything to give us greater hypertrophy outcomes. And then I think that's that this is such a great study in that sense that we had one group doing 12 sets uh, compared to eight sets and they saw greater degrees of myofrequal protein synthesis, but they didn't see more hypertrophy outcomes due to that i was thinking it was the same the hypertrophy outcomes from the 8 to 12 group is the same
1: yeah so i think there's two different measurements and i think one of them they found a significant difference between the the, i think one of them they found a significant difference in the volume i think it was the 48 hour integrated i'm not sure i can't remember the study details actually Mm -hmm. at the moment um but i think when they're looking at the 24 and 48 i don't think they found a significant difference although the numerical difference was you know kind of quite clear to see um but ultimately you know we are saying here essentially that um long-term hypertrophy wasn't similarly affected although you know there's um potentially a, a dilution in that because the uh the only variance in that program wasn't uh just the volume there were other variables that were being manipulated not just training volumes so it's not quite as straightforward to say that uh, training volume is the only factor that would drive that lack of difference um but ultimately yeah i think for me whenever we're talking about rate elevations in myofibrillar protein synthesis, it's it's just impossible to say whether it's going towards hypertrophy or whether it's going towards repair of muscle damage. And on this point, um, you know, some people have argued, well, you know, in a trained individual, somebody who's been training for a couple of months in a particular set of exercises, um, you're not going to see myofibrillar protein synthesis rate elevations being uh, produced in order to Um, you know, repair muscle damage. And I I just fundamentally don't agree with that. I think um, there's a a very common assumption that uh, as soon as we start doing strength training um, and we've been training with an exercise for a couple of weeks, we're no longer experiencing muscle damage. Well, that's simply not true. We have great data showing that um, you know, trained individuals do experience um muscle damage after a workout. And ultimately, if we're getting post-workout fatigue that lasts more than a couple of hours, then we're probably going to be getting muscle damage contributing to that post-workout fatigue. It's pretty much impossible to get post-workout fatigue without some sort of muscle damage in there, you know, to some to some degree, even if it's only a very small amount. So, you know, I think really um these, uh, kind of, uh, these studies, even when they're done in trained people, we have to accept or have to take into consideration that part of that post workout, uh, protein synthesis rate elevation is definitely going towards the repair process as well as, uh, towards the hypertrophy process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was, uh, well, I think we'll either have to come back and do one where we talk about, it, it seems like a big part of that, what this comes up is the repeated bout effect, right? You know, we, we, I think you had posted about that recently was, um the repeated bout effect has limitations. so when somebody goes in they start doing new exercises and stuff like that there's going to be some protective mechanisms that are put in place at the neural level at the the um, at the muscular level, all of those kind of things in order to kind of give you uh, protective mechanisms against muscle damage but the degree of which you can get those from the repeated bout effect is going to be somewhat limited um, and then it you will get a little bit more protective mechanisms, I think it was, it was speculated for a while. It would just happen from the first bout of eccentric contractions. Right. But we, we know it actually, there's a little bit more that occurs in the subsequent workouts after that. The point is they're still limited. They don't continue on to where you can just do an inordinate amount of exercise and volume and you just keep getting protective effects and mechanisms due to that.
1: Yeah, so in terms of the repeat about effect, um, largely it seems to refer to the first workout to the second workout. The repeat about effect literature is pretty substantial and largely it's concerned with that exact question. If we look at the very small subset of literature, which is addressed what I call the multiple repeat about effect, basically the repeat about effect over sequential workouts, you know, sort of two, three, four, five, six. Um, generally speaking, what we find is that the effect the kind of the changes that occur in in those uh, workouts are very very tiny i mean really you know i would say it's an 80 20 but it's probably more like 90 10 i mean really the change from the first workout to the second workout is gigantic and then the changes after that are very very tiny i mean it depends on the exact uh, variable that we're measuring i mean if we measure Uh, delayed onset muscle soreness it pretty much disappears after the first workout and it doesn't really change thereafter we look at uh, post-workout fatigue uh, it's it's very much um a kind of a different story we tend to find that we get a big change after the first workout very very tiny changes in the next couple of workouts and, and really it looks like it then after that sort of pretty much stops changing so I think a lot of people are sort of extrapolating from this gigantic effect from workout one to workout two and going oh well clearly uh, you know if we're getting such a big effect from workout one to workout two if i carry on creating those big effects on subsequent workouts then by next tuesday i won't have any fatigue whatsoever and it simply doesn't work like that that is not the shape of the of the curve that we're looking at here it's a really huge change from workout one to workout two and then very tiny changes thereafter and just finally on this point there are a couple of studies out there that have looked at post-workout fatigue in trained lifters, and it is pretty substantial. Um, you know, even in extremely well-trained, um, a, a, like powerlifting athletes, uh, we do see meaningful amounts of uh, kind of post-workout fatigue. And, and I think really that is uh, kind of critical for us taking into consideration. We cannot simply say trained people don't get, uh, don't experience muscle damage. Therefore, any elevation. In the myofibrillar protein synthesis rate must be due to hypertrophy. Simply not uh, kind of supported by the literature at the moment. Uh,
0: the only way that a, a trained individual would not sustain muscle damage would be well, um, if depending on how their training was set up. But otherwise, for the most part, as long as they're doing they're doing uh, contractions and have they need calcium ions to to basically func- uh, fuel a muscle you know contraction. In that regard. Uh, or be part of muscle contraction in that regard, um, there's going to be calcium ions that are going to get deposited off into the, the cytoplasm. That's going to occur to some degree. It's the magnitude that is going to be determined by how they're doing their training. But I mean, you're still going to experience muscle damage. And I think it's also uh, worthy to note uh, that when we talked about this, was that uh, muscle soreness, DOMS, and muscle damage are not the same thing. And I think that gets confused at times, too, is that you can have muscle damage and and not have delayed onset muscle soreness um you generally if you're going to have doms how if you have doms it's probably a good bet you have muscle damage but you can have muscle damage and not have doms i think that yeah that's it
1: so yeah, you can absolutely
0: yeah so you can have muscle damage but not be sore because it's yes. people get those mechanisms confused quite often and like they're they're not exactly the, they're not the same so, but if you're sore, you probably have muscle damage, but you can have muscle damage not be sore. So back to, so this part here, where we're looking at this, the, what I also wanted to touch on here was something we talked about with the bro split stuff was that um, with the eight sets of, of leg work, we saw that even that uh, myops was still elevated 34% after uh, 48 hours. So if we're looking at that, that means we're pushing what we don't get to back the baseline until it's going to be somewhere around fifty-two-ish, I think, or fifty-four, somewhere in that range. We don't know exactly, but it's going to be a little longer than it used to be speculated. Because it used to be speculated sometimes that my myops would get back to zero before forty-eight hours.
1: Yeah, I think so, and certainly I've been working on that assumption for a long time. Um, you know, and I think this this study has been instrumental in making me think. You know, we need to sort of be pushing that out you know, a few more hours. It'd be really interesting to kind of just uh, extrapolate some of those curves and see where the actual baseline uh, comes back to. And I might have a go at that at some point just to see, you know, roughly what what we're, we're kind of talking about in terms of the actual number of hours there. Um, but really that that's going to be uh, a frequency question i think um more than a, a kind of a training volume question because technically we can still train while we've got some rate elevations from a previous workout it's just going to be probably very slightly less efficient in terms of the stimulus we're getting from each individual set we're doing but ultimately it's not stopping us from training i don't think um, the fatigue uh, is going to be a problem if we've still got fatigue from a previous workout but you know we can create stimulus independently of not entirely independently of fatigue but we can manipulate downwards the magnitude of fatigue relative to each stimulus that we're creating
0: right so with all of that laid in place now we can actually I think we can get into the what are what do, what does the research show what are our thoughts on what the, the word that goes around now all the time is optimal so what are what is the quote-unquote optimal number of sets to be done in a workout. And I don't know how to, if we're talking about the, there's one that says that the workout itself, and then there's the training. Those are two different conversations, I think, right? Because if you're you're gonna train a muscle twice a week, then you can probably get away with doing less volume than the workout itself. Um, If you're training a muscle group once a week, it also depends on the split and how much over, like overlap that you have between like stuff that you're doing is of course as well. So, If we're looking at, um, and then the, let's also say in here that generally speaking, we're consistently talking about training to failure, close to failure with longer rest periods, like not using shorter rest periods.
1: Sure, so I think really um, what we can do when we're looking at the volume literature is um, obviously, a lot of uh, analyses have basically just said, well, let's gather as much data as we possibly can, aggregate it, and, you know, uh, look at the overall kind of um, sort of curve that we get as a result of aggregating all of that data in various different ways, and then basically sort of um, use the power of large amounts of information to kind of uh, gain some confidence about what we're actually trying to find out so they you know there's been some really good work done on that um what i think is also interesting as a way of approaching this problem is to say well what's the exact problem that we're trying to solve here Um, if we are basically saying that um different ways of training will have different dose response curves because they are producing different amounts of fatigue then you know we're going to say well actually do I want to include in my analysis all the studies that have short rest periods because essentially we know already that by having a short rest period they're going to uh, change the dose response curve they're going to require us to do a lot more volume to create the same uh, outcome therefore actually let's take all of those studies out of this analysis and only focus on the you know the sort of the the, the long rest periods or the rest periods above a certain duration and that allows us to say well actually now we're answering a question that's relevant to us because we've decided that we don't want to use those shorter rest periods because they're not the ideal way of, of solving our training problem. So let's just look at the uh, kind of studies that are fit that criteria. And we could further subgroup that and say, well, actually, I don't want to look at the beginner uh, kind of studies either because those studies have a problem uh, that is, you know, in the sense that they're different from my particular population that I'm interested in. So we end up actually ending up with a very small number of studies that we want to look at because they're the only studies that answer the precise question that we're interested in. Um, And I think those are the studies that we've spent most of our time talking about because um, it kind of answers the question that, you know, we're most targeted on, which is if we have a uh, sensible rest period and we are working with a trained individual, you know, what kind of dose responses are we expecting to see?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we look at when we say longer rest periods, I think we had we have to differentiate those. It's actually two minutes or longer. That's kind of the the general one. I, I know three minutes tends to be uh, like what we recommend the most. But I think they're the ones that that differentiated out are usually by less than two minutes and then two minutes or longer. So if we quant- qualify this by saying longer rest periods are, are at least two minutes. Um, and then if you actually then narrow that down, as you said, to using trained individuals, I think we end up with it, what is it, four total studies? Is it three? It's three or four.
1: Um, I've I tend to look at the the three studies on that list um that um I'll put in my um
0: page. So that's notes, that's going to be
1: uh Ostrowski,
0: Fieselgrave, yeah, and all, right?
1: Yep. Exactly, Those are the and we
0: have, we have we do have it. a total of nine that, and like you said, I think the other six use uh, untrained individuals.
1: Yeah, so I'm excluding untrained uh, individuals that that classify. Uh, isn't that
0: way. isn't that something that we have we have as much research as we do? But then if you just say I want I want trained individuals with two minute plus rest periods, we we have to narrow it down to basically three studies. which some of which even still have methodological problems with them too as we talked about with ostrovsky where they measured the fem at further for uh for the quads which
1: well technically we can still use that data i mean um the the issue there obviously is that when we're doing leg presses or squats the rectus morris isn't working um and so therefore there's no point in really including those in our volume (laughs) analysis so we just end up with a knee extension exercise and therefore, you know, instead of having the, the number of sets that it was originally intended to be, you know, we're kind of working with sort of one, two and four sets across the week, which is obviously a very tiny number of, of sets. Um, well, and-
0: in, a, in a way, for the astrology study, if they're measuring rec fem, and he did include a leg extension in the, the program, I believe, then that means that it's kind of okay, because then we can at least just measure, we can just look at the rec fem and say, you um, here's what we're getting from the leg extension because we're not getting anything out of the squats that process but but this is what we're exactly. getting from volumizing leg extensions which is which is perfectly fine and
1: so the opposite it, problem happens with the triceps because exactly the same thing that we were talking about earlier occurs and there's two workouts in the week and you know those two workouts have triceps exercises in them and again can we really count them as triceps exercises and that's the the, the problem that is always going to be the case but potentially we end up with sort of seven you know, kind of sets for the triceps because we've got all of these exercises in in these separate workouts for the for the week. So, you know, in neither case was the actual intended number of sets done. <laughs> it's like very very interesting problem when it comes to that particular um, study design, but. Yeah. So, um, you know, what's really interesting if we look at those studies and start to say, well, what are the dose response curves uh, in those studies? They're not the dose response curves that we get if we look at the uh, kind of meta-analyses and they're not the dose response curves that I think, um, you know, sort of, most people are are generally uh, thinking of because the dose responses that most people are thinking of seem to carry on increasing pretty much forever until the very highest levels of volume. But when we exclude the studies that have those shorter rest periods, we lose those uh, kind of uh, dose response curves. And what we end up with is dose response curves that kind of actually reach plateaus at moderate levels of volume. And that, I think, is really, really interesting because um, that is that is very very uh, different from what the the general picture in our in the in the fitness industry is at the moment.
0: Yes, and the ones that look at the, the higher volumes in um, training individuals are going to be Ridelli and Schoenfeld and and All of those use lower use short rest periods. Um, so um, I believe that's correct uh, let's see. Yeah. Short rest. Those were the three that use short rest periods. And then, and it's, it's, a pretty interesting thing. Cause when you look at those across the board, you had to do more and more and more volume to get the same amount of hypertrophy outcomes as you get, uh, and the others with longer rest periods. And then it's been a pretty consistent con- theme across these studies. So we look at Ostrowski, H- grave and all, um, what we look at is they use longer rest periods, uh, which were at least uh, I think they were like two and a, two and a half minutes or two minutes to two and a half minutes. I think at least on these, and they used moderate loads. Um, I think all used like used, actually use a little bit of variety in loading. Um, but then what we look at is we look at that in most of those the lower or moderate volume tiers uh, was where we saw the response at.
1: Yeah, I mean, but, uh, I think, you know, of, of, of those studies, some of them give us data, which is a little bit difficult to interpret. So, for example, in the case of the Ostrowski, um, you know, we've got really nice uh, kind of data on the on the triceps. It gives us a nice sort of plateau in, in, at a moderate volume around about sort of maybe 21 sets per week or something like that. Um, whereas the rectus moris data is a little bit all over the place. I mean, it, it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really tell us very much at all. Um, and then, you know, in the case of uh, the um, sort of the the ALB data, we've got really nice um, dose response plateau occurring for the for the middle region of the of the muscle that they were measuring, but we don't have uh, such a nice uh, profile for the distal region. Um, you know, um, whereas he's a great study it seems to show a nice plateau occurring in the middle um you know and they, i think they only took one measurement now i've only got one measurement on the graph that i've made in front of me at the moment but Um, You know, what we're saying here basically is that sometimes the data still looks a bit messy and sometimes you get a really, really nice dose response curve that shows a plateau occurring somewhere in the middle, which is exactly what the physiology would predict, because we're expecting to see uh, increases as we progress from one set to two sets, to three sets, whatever it may be per workout. Um, um, But we're expecting also, because of the mechanisms we described earlier, to see some tail-off occurring, uh, plateau occurring, and then ultimately, again, some kind of reduction as we sort of just generally are just creating massive amounts of fatigue later in the workout, which then has to use uh, elevations in protein synthesis to repair. So um, I think, really, when we look at the data, you know, there are indications that we have got a plateau occurring and then a, a decrease at higher volumes. and from the the numbers that we can see there you know it's sort of around about um you know maybe uh, 15 to 18 sets per week is the top end of what is going to be useful in terms of stimulating hypertrophy which is kind of three times a week if somebody's training three times a week would be around about the five or six sets per workout and i think that would be what i would describe as a top end of what's going to be useful now the word optimal you kind of used earlier and i think optimal is always gonna be individualized. I think any time we talk about in, uh, optimal, we have to say, well, it's gonna be optimal for this person, but it's not gonna be optimal for that person. Therefore, by definition, optimal has to be uh, an individualized training program. But if we were just to answer the simpler question, which is what's kind of the maximum number of sets per workout or per week that we can do, and, uh, and, and anything above that is gonna largely be meaningless in terms of um, you know, producing great hypertrophy, in fact, maybe even be negative, um, would be, I think, around about that five or six sets per workout or around about that sort of 18 or so sets per week.
0: Right. And the one that I've always come back to is um, is somewhere around that, is we're going to be looking at, and I, I always end up saying three to five. And the reason why I say uh, three to five is because um, when I tell people three to five, I tell them to start with the least amount that you feel like you can get a good stimulus from. And as we went through... The research we saw three is going to give us a really nice curve. And that's really, and you can see that across. There's other studies that show this, they give us a really nice curve of okay, three sets are going to give us a pretty good stimulus, right? And if you can start there with just three sets, right? And you can progressively keep progressively overloading just using three sets. I tell people there's no need to increase your volume as long as you're still seeing progressive overload. and Because if you start high and you want to start scaling down, I think it becomes more problematic than just starting very low and adding a set here or there whenever you hit a plateau to see if you need more volume or see maybe if you're just maxed out for that exercise at that joint angle range of motion, or if there's a multitude of other problems. But if you start at a very low number of volume, a number of sets to failure, you can scale up very easily, you know, like one set here, like another set there until you find out, okay, adding more volume is not doing anything over for a couple of workouts. And that's what you, when you actually incur a true plateau, whereas if you're starting at something on the higher end and you're doing something like 18 sets a week, or you're doing 16 sets a week, where do you start scaling down? Because are you now adding, are you doing, uh, here also comes the practical application that it becomes difficult. If you're trying to max out and say, okay, maybe I, what if I'm on the top end and I can do, Sixteen sets a week, which I think eight sets for a muscle group in a specific in one workout, I think is very difficult. I think eight sets to failure for one muscle group is 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 pretty much almost no one's going to see that. There's your faith. So I don't think some people will say, "Well, you said eight sets." I'm like, I don't, I don't think almost anyone out there, number one, needs eight sets. But I think if you're somebody's trying to do eight sets to failure. Twice a week for a muscle group, I think that ultimately they're going to what think what's we call overtraining, right? Very quickly, where they're going to have a lot of fatigue that they're trying to, to recover from. So, um, I don't think anybody needs eight sets twice a week. So, if you're trying to scale appropriately for practical application, starting as low as two or three sets for a muscle, if you're training it twice a week, is is a pretty good place to start.
1: Well, and and the interesting thing here is that. Um these data that we've been describing uh, where we're seeing this really kind of nice plateau occurring in the uh, kind of middle volumes um and we're describing a a group of studies which are limited Uh, we're limiting them because we're using uh, long rest periods we're also limiting them to trained individuals but i think really we are probably still referring to most uh you know most likely intermediate category in terms of, uh, you know, training status as far as hypertrophy is concerned, you know, we're not, we're not really talking about the advanced uh, kind of very high level bodybuilder who's experiencing very small kind of amounts of muscle growth. So, um, you know, we're still describing an intermediate population. And as a result, um, you know, that has implications because if we're, we're talking about this, this volume, uh, uh, not recommendation, it's not a recommendation at all, but this, this kind of volume analysis where we're saying, we think that, you know, sort of, maybe um you know sort of 18 sets total per week which in in my parlance would be six sets per workout three times a week and obviously you know um sort of what you're saying is you probably kind of think more in terms of two workouts a week with eight sets but um you know however it's kind of set up um the advanced lifter is probably going to have a slightly different dose response curve they're probably going to find that they plateau a lot earlier because the CNS fatigue effects and the calcium-related fatigue effects are going to cause them a lot bigger problems a lot earlier. So I think if we were to look at this exact same set of uh, kind of uh, study designs in more advanced uh, lifters, I think we would start to see those numbers come down. And I don't think we'd be talking about 18 sets per week as being the maximum possible dosage that causes hypertrophy, above, which we don't really see any further increases. I think we'd be talking a lot lower numbers than that. I think we'd be talking around about sort of, you know eight to ten sets per week and anything more than that really isn't going to do anything um and i think that's you know just simply because of the training status sort of uh, question so if we wanted to extrapolate this data i think we would change uh what numbers i think we were we were, we were talking about uh, and bring those numbers down uh quite considerably and say you know really you know a couple of sets per workout isn't just Um, practically the right uh, kind of number that we'd end up with, but actually maybe quite close to the uh, the maximum as well. I think we start going more than, you know, sort of uh, you know three sets per workout three times a week we're gonna really really struggle um to start seeing uh extra growth above that in an advanced lifter at least in terms of the study designs that we're talking about i mean if we were to change the way the sets would perform for example and do you know clusters or you know very heavy loads or something different then that would not apply but in terms of just the the, the context that we're talking about here i think we would be bringing this number down substantially for an advanced lifter simply because they are much more sensitive to the fatigue problem than the intermediates.
0: Yeah. And I, when we talk about these, these studies using trained lifters, sometimes when they say trained lifters, they have a year and a half of lifting experience, which by all intents and purposes, we would still consider relatively new. They're new, you know, somewhat new to lifting, maybe like at that beginner intermediate level, right? So to me, if somebody has been in the gym for two years consistently and training very hard, that's kind of borderline intermediate level. And then you have to from there on out. So a lot of times when they say trained in trained individuals, it's just that they're not complete novices to this, which we end up with very different adaptations due to all of this kind of stuff. But I if we use like for just giving myself as a practical ap- application example, I could never go in and do eight sets for a muscle group twice a week. I, I would be destroyed. Like I, there's no, there'd be no way I could recover from that. Um, and I think you train, you generally train full body three times a week. How many work sets close to failure do you allocate? You don't do more than four exercises in a workout usually, right?
1: It's almost always, um, it's almost always uh, four exercises per workout, unless there's something I'm interested in trying or you know experimenting with. In which case, I'll just have a mess around with that at the end, so no, not count that, but. Yeah, basically three sets uh, per exercise. Um, and yeah, usually four exercises per workout. So um I think that, and obviously that's kind of the numbers that I'm talking about in terms of advanced um, kind of lifters. Now, um I think ultimately it's probably possible to add a set here or there and, and still recover, but certainly it's a long way away from you know eight, absolutely. Um i mean that's a different different uh you know kind of situation entirely but um i think really there's definitely other factors if we want to start getting into program design but just in terms of this volume question i think you know the data that we're selecting specifically because it fits certain criteria are telling us that we're kind of hitting You know, our plateaus around about the 18 sets per week, Um, you know, however, that might be split up six sets per workout three times a week, which I would, you know, be very uncomfortable doing myself. I think that would be the reason the reason why Um, I brought
0: that up was because you went to four sets per exercise a couple of months ago and and said you absolutely could not recover from that.
1: I absolutely hated it. Yes, I did. I, I was really intrigued. I wanted to see if um, the, the, the additional set would make a positive difference. Um, my routine is incredibly um, stable, apart from when I'm just trying something at the end of the workout, which I mess around with sometimes um, just for you know purposes of understanding things better. Um, and so it stays stable for very long periods of time. And my basic routine has not really changed at all for just over a year now um and i wanted to see if adding an extra set would change anything uh, immediately i started to find it very very difficult to uh, recover i started really not enjoying going to the gym quite so much and um i definitely decided i was going to stop doing that after about five or six weeks so you know from a personal perspective absolutely i mean i don't want to sort of influence anyone else's uh kind of training decisions based on my personal experience but um, yeah, absolutely. That was that was what I found when I started to manipulate my volume upwards in that way.
0: Yeah. And when you're, so what I was going to get back to you, since you do full body three times a week, and it's usually three sets close to failure on your four exercises, you're probably looking at somewhere around like nine to 11 sets for a muscle group in a given week, right? I mean, that's pretty much where you're landing.
1: More or less, Yes.
0: Yeah, and I would say because I generally do, I train on a push-pull split, so some weeks I'll train a muscle group directly, twice a week, and other weeks if I take an extra day off because I'm tired or whatever, it's maybe it's only once a week. And then I generally don't do more than what I would consider three sets to failure for a muscle group within a workout. So we've kind of landed in very, very similar areas. Um, so that means in a given week I, I'm generally hitting somewhere around six or seven sets over the twice a week for a uh, four muscles. Now, for example, like lower body, because like I said, I think there's a little bit more direct overlap there uh, when you're doing like, for example, glutes and hamstrings. Uh, I don't think people ever realize how much of a strong co-contraction you're getting in your quads when you do something like an RDL. If people don't think so, go make sure your quads are completely fatigued and try to do RDLs and see how, how much they have to actually stabilize you. So I think there's a little more overlap in legs, but even legs, I want to say I do uh, maybe three or four sets total for like quads. It's really not as much as people think. Um, and then again, if on a glute day, uh, I'll do like a thrust or something like that. So you still get some quads in there and they'll get one or two sets there. Um, and then hamstring sometimes gets some work with some of your glute work, too, and vice versa. So um, there's overlap there. But for the most part, um, what I've found in my own training is that I fall in within that kind of realm of a per workout basis, um, and I think a per workout basis I think is a little better focus sometimes for people to think about than focusing on weekly volume workout because um, getting in kind of the what I consider to be the minimal amount. That's why I was going back to the three sets earlier. I talked about if you can if you start at a very small amount of volume, you see progressive overload occurring. Don't increase volume until maybe you get to a plateau. And it's like you said, you've kind of already figured out, Hey, from a recovery standpoint and what I enjoy doing, I know what that structure is going to look like. Uh, and I, I do the same thing. So I I think what people come back to, and they wouldn't know so much is like how much volume, how many work sets am I supposed to be doing for muscle and workout? And number one, I think it has to do with your training experience. Um, And I think it has to do with the exercises that you're selecting. But somewhere in the some like three sets to six sets to failure in a workout for a muscle, I think is going to be about what we do see even in the the research, but also from practical application standpoint.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, two things I would add to that is that there probably isn't a and I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here, but there, there probably isn't um, a, a number of sets that we can do which is too low that uh, will actually and therefore will actually fail to produce any kind of hypertrophic response whatsoever. So I think there's this often kind of um, perception because of the way it's talked about online, people kind of go, if I don't do enough sets, I won't generate hypertrophy. Absolutely not true. Um, you know, if if we literally just do one set, then it's going to move us into that, you know, out of that catabolic state. And um, even if it's not going to cause a, you know, a substantial increase, it's going to keep us ticking over till the point when we actually do create hypertrophy. Maintenance volumes are incredibly, incredibly low. So, I, we, you know, I think
0: I I brought up we that was the one thing we didn't get around to cover yet is just how low maintenance volumes are. They're 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 so small. Like the the little amount of work, I want to say it's as It's like a fourth of the work that whatever you were doing will absolutely maintain. It's like so small. And the reason I brought up those, these all tied in together, we didn't get into the D training uh, study. Well, I mean, we can cover that really quickly, but it's very cool to look at. The reason why I wanted to bring those two up and tie all this together was because number one, one set to failure, take one set to failure. You're going to get an anabolic response for somewhere to the tune of 26, 29 hours or so where you're not going to be catabolic, okay? So the people who say like you need a bunch, even you need so little work to just maintain the muscle mass that you have. It's so little work. And, and probably,
1: then, and probably in, in many people's instances, many people's cases, it's not just going to maintain, but it is actually going to produce a response, you know? So it's a very high probability. Then many people are going to achieve hypertrophy over a course of a week with a couple of workouts with one set failure. absolute high probability, even if they are, you know, solid intermediates with, you know, sort of a training history behind them. I think that there's a high probability that that's going to happen. You now, can we increase that by doing a couple more sets per workout? Absolutely. I mean, and that definitely is clear from the literature. Um, if we... But then if we start adding lots more sets, we're going to probably see a plateau and then, and then potentially a decline. But I just want to kind of add here that when we're talking about, you know, these volumes that are the maximum possible amount that we can do in a workout and still, you know, create hypertrophy. And after that level, we're not seeing any further increases. That's what we're describing. We're not saying that, you know, one set failure isn't going to cause hypertrophy, because I think in many cases absolutely will all the way through the intermediate kind of uh, level at least Um, the argument about advanced lifters is probably slightly more nuanced but maybe have that another time and in terms of uh, as we're progressing through the training uh, kind of uh, history training career if you like then we are going to find i think that the higher end of that spectrum Uh, that six sets per workout or uh, 18 sets per week is going to start coming down as we get to the advanced level and you know even if we've been accustomed to doing those higher volumes as an intermediate i think we're probably going to find that they become less useful and we probably want to focus more on achieving higher intensity and more specific exercise selection in those advanced individuals rather than just saying, oh, yeah, let's just keep throwing loads of volume at the problem and hoping that it's going to work. And the reality is there's going to be a lot of junk volume in that scenario if we start to look at that end of the spectrum. So I think what I'm trying to do is set the context for our study selection that we've just been describing and say, you know, this is probably an intermediate uh, data set. If we're talking about beginners, we're going to get slightly different results. If we're talking about advanced, we're going to get slightly different results. And these are the physiological reasons why we would expect that to be the case.
0: Yes, I, that's it's such an important point to drive home. And that's what I was talking about when we said training individuals that we're probably looking at intermediate set points here with in terms of a volume for, per workout and per week. And so we... That's why when we look at, at these and we say trained individuals, we're just getting past that noob stage and we do see it come down. I think you're 100 percent right. If we use very well trained individuals, I'm talking five plus years of experience, we would see an even smaller dose response than those people. Um, and the the part I want to point out there is when we since we talked about myops a lot and stuff is that uh, a very cool uh, point that we talked about in our earlier conversations leading up to this week was that the largest um jumps and myops uh, occur from zero to one set, right? Where there's nothing going on. And you have one, it's a massive jump. And then the biggest jump from there is one to two. And then after that, you can see, and you said this over and over again for multi multitude of years, you said every set that you do is going to be slightly less of a stimulus than than the previous set. And that's what we see is we see this jump up real fast. And then we see this curve like this, that just starts to flatten out with each set. And that is because of the fact that those interference mechanisms are talked about and those hypertrophy outcomes is that every set that you do, it, it, the initial ones have a high degree of stimulus, but then each successive one offers a slightly lower degree of stimulus due to the fatiguing mechanisms that have occurred each time that you do a set. So there's going to be a little bit less motor unit recruitment that's going to happen from the previous set due to fatigue. And there's going to be a little bit more calcium ion related fatigue due to that stuff. So each time that you do a set, the stimulus is smaller. And then there's the belief that, well, you're if you're trying to eke out, I do believe this. I think that Probably ninety percent of the results that you're ever going to get are going to occur from a very low degree of "quote unquote" volume sets performed to failure, and then the people that are after that true last one or two percent, maybe they have to do a little bit more volume, but how much more I think is going to be very small. I'm literally talking maybe potentially one set or two sets, but uh, the bigger factor I think is going to be something that we touched on earlier is actually figuring out the way to access motor unit recruitment that they have, just have not been using prior to that, to, to potentially get certain regional hypertrophy and that kind of stuff. But, uh, looking at this, because like, we can probably like wrap this up talking about this part here. And that was the other study I sent you. And that was, um, who is this one by? Let me go up here. This was uh, a Bickle study and that's exercise dosing to retain resistance training adaptations and young and old people. And I really found this, this one very interesting because what they did was is that they uh, trained uh, some young people between 20 and 35 years old and then some old people between 60 and 65, uh, and then they did a two-phase um, training study. And that's the the first one was for uh, 16 weeks and then followed by 32 week, which was the second phase, uh, and then what they would call a detraining study. Now, what's interesting in the detraining study is that the young people actually – When they reduced their volume by a third, a lot of them actually saw increases in muscle mass continue, which was I thought was super cool. Right. Which was just telling they were still getting that uh, a massive amount of stimulus, even from that one third, because they were still seeing hypertrophy increases. So they were literally because this was like they literally kind of went from a beginner stage of training to like borderline intermediate and were still getting gains off doing a third of what they started with. Now, the older people actually had to do more volume. That's a completely different conversation, but it's kind of relative because of uh, uh, what we have seen in the research is that as you get into your 60s and 70s, you lose some ability to recruit motor units. So they would have probably have to do more volume in order to make up for that in the detraining phase. But I found this part interesting because of the fact is, as we just talked about, the amount of volume that needs to be done to just retain what you built is really tiny. It's very small.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, and, and it really uh, kind of ties into uh, a topic uh, that we'll have to talk about uh, on this podcast in the future, which is training frequency. Um, you know, because that uh, idea of maintaining, uh, you know, with, Uh, very low volumes can be incorporated, as we said earlier in the bro splits, but also um, this idea that we've just been uh, kind of finishing on the idea that uh, each additional set that we generate is creating a much smaller amount of hypertrophy than the previous one Um, that really has very, very profound implications for how training frequency actually works physiologically. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil the answer for people by 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 saying what it is here. But um, if you kind of just sit down and, and think about the fact that you know each set in a workout is not producing the same amount of hypertrophy, then uh, how you split that volume up over the week, um, by definition, has to matter. Um, and and so there's some really interesting conclusions that we can draw from that uh, as regards how training frequency um, actually probably works physiologically. But as I say, definitely uh, a separate conversation. So I'm not going to go uh, and say any more about that now um but um, how shall we how shall we wrap this up uh, for today paul
0: well i think the part there um to continue the wrapping up portion is this is that number one a very very tiny amount of volume and in, in the in the training either the training session or the training week number one can still produce meaningful hypertrophy results literally uh even though people don't like to hear this often you know, one set for uh, the muscle done twice a week can produce meaningful hypertrophy outcomes in lots of people. So some people could choose to start doing one set for a muscle group twice a week and seeing if you can progressively overload uh, those two extra. Say if you were doing a a barbell curl one day and a dumbbell curl the next day for biceps, you're just doing one set. If you saw progressive overload occurring for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months, you're going to be having hypertrophy occur. You're going to see muscle adaptations occur. Uh, People, I think sometimes they have trouble getting their head around that. But again, this is what the research consistently says, both in terms of measuring myops and actually the longitudinal hypertrophy outcome. So it's a real thing. Um, So I think for where you and I consistently come from is thinking about, number one, how you enjoy training. Uh, Do you want to train a whole body three times a week? Then you're going to have probably different volume equations you're going to be looking at as somebody who's going to train a muscle group once a week or twice a week but overall i think uh we did this whole long podcast or something that we said for the past few years is like your volume on for a muscle in a per session group probably going to be maximized somewhere between three to six sets to failure within that training with, for that training session
1: yeah, and I think that then is affected by training status. So people who are of higher training status are probably going to find that they um, experience a plateau earlier than people who are more intermediate level. Um, and I think that, you know, just as, as we've described, that's just a function of how many muscle fibers they've got capable of growth and where those muscle fibers are in the motor unit pool. So, um, you know, I think uh, even though the data we've described today kind of indicates sort of... 18 sets per week or six sets uh, per workout on three times per week uh, basis as being that kind of top end um, uh, doesn't mean that that's going to be the top end for somebody of more advanced status because the literature doesn't go into that that group i mean so we just don't know um so you know i think the number is going to come down i think it's going to be more like three or four probably for those particular people unless the program variables are fundamentally changed in a different way um but yeah so uh, definitely think training status is important as well then.
0: Right. So when somebody asked a couple of things, because we've gotten asked this a lot, we'll wrap this guy up. A couple of things, counting volume sets the failure. Again, mechanical tension, the way that we're looking at volume is the actual stimulating reps perform. Um, Counting volume for beginners, uh, probably going to be able to do a little more volume and continue to see big hypertrophy responses. And for them, probably going to be able to count any compound movement, multi-joint movement as one set for any of the muscles involved in that exercise. As you progress into the intermediate stage, doing something we talked about, maybe we actually figured that out throughout this podcast in an inter- intermediate stage. If you do a press, something like a chest press, you could probably count that as a set for chest and then half a set for delts or triceps, all depending Uh, But maybe that's not a horrible way to look at it for an intermediate. Then an advanced person probably is going to have the intuition and the perspective to say the way that I press, how I do my, my press, the resistance profile, all those things I'm using is either going to count as predominantly one set for chest or maybe I'm more these the way I press is more tricep dominant. So I have to figure out another exercise to actually load my chest because every time I do chest presses, I just get like you said, I just feel like it's a tricep exercise. So that's pretty cool because I think we actually kind of figured out it through talking through this is like it really those things bear fruit as you go through your training life, right? Like you kind of figure those things out. You're like, oh, I can't do a chest press if I want to train chest properly today. I actually have to resort to something like more of a cable fly. And those are what I have to do because I'm just so dominant with my triceps or shoulders. So that kind of stuff really depends on training experience. So there's no real way. I think the only people that could potentially qualify something like a press is like half a step. Press tricep potentially would be intermediate level trainers. Advanced guys, you're doing a squat. It's adductors, it's quads, it's everything. It's low back, it's upper back. It's kind of pretty much you're getting a little bit of stimulus for everything, right? So it depends on training experience. Um, the other thing as far as how to count volume, we went over that counting, stimulating reps is probably a much better way to go about Counting "quote unquote" training volume than actually talking about sets. We didn't even mention the one study that came out lately that was a really good one that showed that the group that did uh, more sets didn't have the same hypertrophy outcome as the group that did less sets, but trained to failure. One group trained further away from failure. One group trained closer to failure. The group that did more, they did fewer sets, had more hypertrophy outcomes than the group that did more sets but stayed further away from failure. I just thought that was a good one because it showed the stimulated backed up the stimulating reps model very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's let's do proximity to failure and, and stimulating reps in a different podcast. I mean, we could be sitting here, or, in my case, all night. I know it's more. Yeah, food. we yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> from, from the people who who tune in, they're like they want us to give them some. Here's the magical, the magical muscle mathematical number for sets. If it to me, i just that's why I just consistently tell people somewhere around three to six sets close to failure is. For a muscle is a good place to start i don't think you have to have some magical number as we discussed going through this one set's still going to give you a stimulus three sets going to give you a little bit higher stimulus and then from there on out it all tends to kind of kind of flatten out quite a bit so anything more than th- from like three sets to six, six sets yeah you're still getting a stimulus but from there on out really starts to flatten out so i really can't say um in a in a and i always go back to the session i don't even like personally i don't like saying that the sets for week because uh i still feel like 18 sets in a week just feels high
1: it it does but that's the point that i was making about training status i think anybody who's been training sort of five years plus is going to look at 18 sets and, and scratch their heads and go what on earth would i be doing that kind of you know how would i feel after that it would just be horrendous i think um and i think that's that's the issue because Um, There's a very big difference between the intermediate and the advanced level. Um, And I think the the stimulus just isn't going to be the same. So um, I think really when we're talking about this data set that we've been describing, it really does talk to the intermediate category. Um, And that's where the six sets per workout or 18 sets per week is probably the upper end of what's useful. Um, I think the advanced category, I would predict that we'd be talking at much more like sort of nine or ten um sets per week or maybe sort of three sets per workout three or four sets per workout is probably being the the upper end of what's going to be useful now you know um above that level i think we're going to start to see too much fatigue to actually generate um the the adaptions that we want to generate and simply because fatigue is a bigger problem for the advanced lifter because they have fewer fibers that are still capable of growth and they're all at the top end of the motor unit pool um, is there any data on that no so um, this is an extrapolation but i think it's a useful one
0: Yes, I, I think that if we have and I hope that we get one in the future, a couple of studies looking at well, well, like really well trained individuals. I'm talking, you know, guys that can, you know, that have been training three to five solid years that have good lifts and that kind of stuff. Looking at them. I think that their hypertrophy outcomes on basically vol- the amount of volume they're using would consistently be on the low end of the tier comparatively to even what we're seeing at the inter- intermediate so as you said, most of the, the three studies that we referenced today use trained individuals, but they're what we call intermediate level lifters and they use longer rest periods. And then for those, like you said, we're, the top end of that's going to be around 18 sets a week. But for the most part, I think if people are looking for a volume number to be shooting for somewhere around three to six sets in the workout itself uh, is a good place. It's a good range to just start at and then manipulating your variables from
1: there. Absolutely. And I wouldn't rule out if somebody, you know, I wouldn't rule out uh, kind of drifting down towards that three uh, sets, um, you know, as as training status increases. I mean, you know, I think ultimately what we are going to find in the future as as more data becomes available is that intensity and exercise selection are going to be far more important for the advanced lifter than and just simply doing more of the same because more of the same is going to be very very subject to those fatigue mechanisms which are going to cause cause problems for them so even you know even from a starting point i would still not rule out the possibility that um decreasing volume may be the answer rather than increasing volume if, if that makes sense
0: and from an anecdotal standpoint i'll add this and we'll wrap it up um When you look at very advanced level bodybuilders, most of the time they get up there to a certain level and there's no improvements from there. And I think what happens a lot of times um, is that they keep picking the same exercises over and over and over and over again. And all they're really doing is maintaining the adaptations that they built to get up to that point. So they're massive and they're huge and all that. And I get it. But a lot of what they did was those adaptations that you see in terms of hypertrophy, they're just going in and training very hard to maintain them. Whereas what would probably happen is if they wanted to continue improving, is that they would have to change things around and find ways to recruit uh more new like motor units that they have not been using in order to get some regional or um specific hypertrophy they just have not been doing because they're like I said, the the best example I can give of that is Dorian Yates who figured out, hey, I've got to train a, my muscles using a little bit less volume. He actually reduces volume and then found different exercises that he had not been using to further getting muscle growth. So I think that's a it's a good anecdotal way to look at this is most guys they get up to a certain size and they maximize out their quote unquote potential. And then what they try to do is do more volume, but they end up doing more volume on the same stuff that they've been doing. And all they're doing at that point is essentially causing more and more and more fatigue that they got to recover from. So I guess if anybody's trying to take anything away from this, this right now the research is telling us that intermediate level guys are going to be looking at somewhere around six sets in a workout for a muscle group. That's going to be around the t- what I would consider anything more than that's going to give you very little. Very little. Also it
1: could, could be negative. It could actually reduce the amount of uh, uh, gains that are being achieved by the workout because of the, the muscle damage problem. So, you know, I think really uh, six is definitely looking like a, 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 the the upper useful uh, kind of limit in in most cases.
0: Yeah, when you actually took all the data and put that in one of your infographs, the six was like that plateau number that hit. And then another guy that did the same thing when he looked at it, looked at all the data using longer rest periods. Six was the number that he got in the procession. So the the frequency thing is actually a completely different argument. But from, from the six on out, you can actually see the, see it come down.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have looked at this and thrown data into various different kind of ways of of, of aggregating it and have started to see the reductions occurring at the, at the top ends of the volume that people are doing. So, you know, I think really it would be, be amazing if over the next few years people started to filter that information down into the mainstream, people started to realize that there is an, uh, kind of a level of volume that we can do that is, actually very unhelpful it actually starts to reduce the amount of gains that we're achieving with each workout you know can't just carry on increasing it uh, you know forever
0: all right i think that we um this is the third time we've covered the the volume discussion we actually had two webinars on it the other time this time we covered it from a slightly different angle. But the funny thing is we end up back at the the exact same place the other time we did the webinars, every time we go back over the data, not that there's any new data that we have like Porto, but every conceivable way we end up going back over it, we find that, hey, one set to three sets, you're you're getting more stimulus from one to three, but anything from three on to six, you're not really getting that much more. And from six on to that, it's pretty much a wash. So from anybody who's watching this, I'm Chris and I, I think our, the best advice we could give you is terms of if you really want to sit down and put this into a practical application standpoint, starting somewhere around three or four sets for a muscle group, and then just kind of working from there on out on your own individual preferences and see how progressive overloads occur.
1: So I, I think that I wouldn't rule out doing one set to failure either. I mean, if people want to train like that, it's absolutely in most cases still going to work. So yeah, I, I, think-
0: I, I think if you actually go back and look at the, um, the Mike Mentor routines from the late 70s, Mike did like an upper lower split and he did one set to failure. For most of his exercises, uh, he got crazy later on. He got really wild later on where he was like training muscle group once every like 27 days or something like that. It was really wild. He, he went off the deep end. But uh if you look at some of his other other early stuff, he was pretty close to kind of what we talked about in terms of you know focus on one or two good sets, you know, two, you know, potentially three exercises for a muscle group. He was pretty close. So, and then Dorian kind of took that and really like finessed it and refined it for his own bodybuilding. It was pretty close. And I I think it's pretty cool to see the research kind of get closer to that in terms, like you said, we're dealing with mostly intermediate level stuff. But I I think using the lower end of the volume here, most people are going to be much happier with the results that they're going to get
1: well um i'm certainly uh, i certainly find that i enjoy my workouts a lot more when i don't do uh, very high volumes per I, 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 I have I never been one different. of those
0: guys as much <laughs> as I love lifting i don't want to be in the gym for two hours i do not understand that whole man that, maybe that's because we both enjoy training very hard but I just don't find after much more than an hour I can really stay in there any longer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And generally speaking, whenever I'm doing an exercise, I'm, I'm kind of like trying to achieve an improvement. I've, uh, I may even have a specific goal that I'm trying to achieve for some specific purpose. You know, And I think that's very difficult to do when you're throwing an absolute ton of volume at something. It's, it's just very kind of uh, it feels very counterproductive in many ways.
0: From the mental aspect of trying to create progressive overload, I always found the one set easier for me in terms of because I could just I'm focused I need to beat my numbers or my weight whatever for this one set or two sets that I have so it's a main set and then maybe a back offset or something but I'm just focusing on a very small number of sets that I need to beat performance on it to me from a mental standpoint of approaching workouts that always works best
1: yeah I mean I think the only exceptions to that rule are where the reps per set are very low you know, so, of course, you know, there's, there's classic strength programs that only involve a couple of reps per set. And you can, you know, you can do five to eight sets of those. And it's not a problem because you are only talking about two or three reps per set. Um, that's just a totally separate kind of way of training. But I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, the kind of routines where we're aiming to improve, um, you know, sort of a, a, a certain number of reps per set every single time we go in the gym it is very, very difficult to do those and do do high volumes. I think whether it's just for the workout itself or whether it's for the training week.
0: Yeah, we didn't even get into. I thought about this last night, going into this morning. We didn't even get into uh, how the Olympic lifters train multiple times a day, like every day a week. We already know the answer to that. They don't have. They, for the most part, they don't have eccentric. They don't use a lot of eccentric uh, contractions in their training. Most when they're training, they're actual competition lifts. So there's, there's that's like comparing apples to monkey riches. If you're somebody trying to train, compare weightlifting programs to bodybuilding.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we can come back to that on training frequency and, and do that. Yeah,
0: again. I think that would be a good one to look at for training frequency, because that I don't know if you remember that from back in the past when people would take the Bulgarian Olympic lifters like training styles and say, oh, well, if you do this for bodybuilding, I'd like, that does not work, that 100% does not work. So let we'll wrap this one up. Um, I think that was incredibly informative. Uh, uh, and I always enjoy that one. Two weeks uh, from today, we'll do your favorite topic, metabolic stress, uh, the one closest, nearest and dearest to your heart. I'm actually looking super forward to that one because I've had to have that particular discussion online multiple two times myself. Uh, one of the things that I think that we're kind of trying to do is redo this paradigm a little bit of the fact that I think for the most part, muscle damage is pretty dead Uh there's absolutely we don't really talk about that much anymore metabolic stress is kind of hanging on by a thread so we're going to talk about metabolic stress in two weeks and if it is or is not truly a uh, driver or catalyst behind muscle growth I'm looking very forward to that
1: (laughs) yes be a lot of fun
0: all right for uh for both of us that's uh, that's the Chris and Paul show. Thanks to you guys for uh, joining uh, and listening, Chris. As always, thanks for being here, Bud.
1: Thank you, Paul.